As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Do you want in on a secret that high-performance marketing teams use to drive ROI? AdRoll gives your business the marketing edge you need to make hitting your goals easier while saving time. AdRoll optimizes ad campaigns across display, native, and social media channels all in one place. Deduplicate conversion attribution across channels and even trigger emails based on user interactions. Sign up at AdRoll.com slash ROI to join the club. How well do you really know the people in your life? Do you think you know your spouse or romantic partner? Your parents, siblings, friends. We would like to think we know almost everything about our friends and loved ones, but everyone, no matter how transparent they may appear, they almost always seem to keep at least some part of themselves private. Might be something real trivial, real small. Maybe they spend a, a bit more shopping than they let on. Maybe while claiming to be on a diet, they cheat a bit more than let anyone know about. Maybe they get a little Botox and don't tell anyone or a little vitamin T, testosterone if you don't know but solely credit their workout habits for their muscle gains. Maybe they sneak in a little porn or a little more porn than they admit to, or they have a pill habit they don't tell anyone about. Or maybe something a bit bigger, like an affair or numerous affairs. Or maybe they steal from work or shoplift when they're not at work or hide money from their spouse in some kind of secret account. Or perhaps it's a lot bigger. Maybe they are living an entirely separate life with an entirely separate family lived out under a totally different name. Or maybe they fucking kill people. A lot of people. Julie Baumeister thought she knew her husband, Herb. At least that's what she claimed. You'd think she would. They were married almost 25 years. As far as Julie was concerned, Herb was a family man, a devoted father and a hard worker. Sure, there were a few things that were off about him. He had his quirks, maybe more than most. And their marriage had problems, for sure more than most. But hey, Herb was eccentric, always was. He'd exhibited strange behavior throughout his life. There was that time he thought it would be uh, funny to put a dead crow on his teacher's desk, but no one else agreed. Part of a series of incidents that would cause Herb's school to pressure his parents to have him evaluated by a psychiatrist, which they did. And then there was a time when Herb would be committed to a psychiatric hospital for two months by his father early in his marriage, but would never tell Julie why. And the time where he likely urinated on his boss's desk. Perhaps the strangest incident of all, Herb told Julie and the kids that some human bones his son found in their yard, including a human skull, with the remains of a cadaver once used by his anesthesiologist father, but then uh, wouldn't tell them why he had just, you know, apparently dumped them out in the lawn under a tree. And there was Julie and Herb's sex life, or lack of a sex life. They rarely had any romantic intimacy, like she could count the number of times the two of them had sex on two hands, barely needing the second hand, during their almost 25 years of marriage. And Herb often stayed home alone for long periods of time while she and their children went on vacation. Looking back, there was actually a lot of red flags that something was off with her Baumeister, but Julie didn't want to see them. How many of us are guilty of the exact same thing, overlooking what we don't want to accept, what we don't want to find out? Despite all the signs that Herbert was more than a little different, his wife Julie said that she was still extremely shocked and devastated when she learned her husband was suspected of the murders of several gay men in Indianapolis. How could the man she knew as a loving and gentle father possibly be a killer? Although never convicted of any murders, Herb Baumeister is suspected of killing over 30 boys and men. Human bones are still turning up on his former property today, over 25 years after his death. 
Herb is believed to be responsible not just for the piles and piles of bones found on his estate, but also for the strangulation of numerous additional men and boys found near Interstate 70 between Indiana and Ohio. We'll never know for sure how many people Herb killed or why he killed his victims because he was never put on trial. Herb would end his own life before he could ever face justice. Who the hell was Herb Baumeister? This week, we'll discuss the life and suspected crimes of Herb, the bodies found on Fox Hollow Farm, and in a little different twist than normal, we'll look into some claims that all the murders Herb very likely committed at Fox Hollow Farm left his former property extremely haunted. Paranormal Witness on Sci-Fi and Ghost Adventures on Discovery Plus, just a few of the shows that have sent teams of ghost hunters to investigate some supposed sightings of and encounters with some really disturbing entities. All this and more on today's blend of true crime and the supernatural edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sack. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Welcome back. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suck Master, CDA Prophet. Killer Cry Squire, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise good boy Bojangles, and help sing away these gray, dreary Northwest winter days, Triple M. Uh, taping this episode just before my Minneapolis stand-up special taping on December 10th. Uh, thanks to everyone for quickly scooping up the just release tickets. Man, uh, I am hoping I feel good about that recording by the time this episode drops. How about I feel at least 90% recovered from the flu? Feel, feeling 85% back today. Sorry for my shitty voice last week. I'm, I'm hopeful it'll hold up today. Uh, just added a couple things real quick, real quick, actually, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, just added two shows to the Burn It All Down 2023 Theater Tour. Added second shows in Sacramento on February 10th and Philadelphia on March 25th. So fun. Uh, more meet and greet packages available now in those markets. Tickets should be on sale by the time you hear this. You can go to dancummins.tv for any and all tour tickets. Uh, no new merch for the rest of December. Trying to move what we already have because we have so much good stuff at badmagicmerch.com if you haven't been there. Or haven't been there recently. And now before we jump into today's uh, story, just a quick update on our December charity, which was the Bad Magic Giving Tree. So thankful we were able to help a little over 50 families have a special holiday season. The Patreon donation towards the Giving Tree totaled $14,513. Bunch of you added another $10,034. Then Lindsay and I kicked in an extra $13,000 to make sure that 53 families of 125 total kids will have a magical holiday season. So thank you and hail fucking Nimrod. Uh, also able to donate another $1,612 to our scholarships fund, which will be activated this next year. So good shit. A lot of good shit. And now let's get into the bad shit of Herbert Baumeister, a lesser known, but possibly incredibly prolific American serial killer. Herbert Richard Baumeister. Oh, fuck yeah. Getting today's dick out of the way right out of the gate for today's episode. Uh, was a businessman and suspected serial killer. We're supposed to say suspected because Herb died of suicide before he was found guilty of any murders. But this motherfucker did it. He was for sure a serial killer. Get the fuck out of here. The only question is how many people he killed before he took himself out. Uh, at the time of his death, old Herbie Dickmeister lived in Westfield, Indiana, an outer northern suburb of Indianapolis. All around 50,000 people live in the rapidly growing area now. Only between three and 4,000 lived there when Herb was burying bodies out in his large rural property where his kids played. 
Herbert was under investigation for the disappearances of numerous men in the early 90s when he died. A good portion of his victims were last seen at various gay bars he frequented in downtown Indianapolis on the sly, his double life. Most of the rest were sex workers. All were men and boys. The police have now discovered the remains of at least 25 people on the Baumeister property, Fox Hollow Farm. Only eight have been positively identified so far. Been challenging to identify any of them. Uh, Herb certainly hasn't helped. On July 3rd, 1996, 49-year-old Herb Baumeister took a lot of secrets to his grave when he shot himself in the head in Pinery Provincial Park, Grand Bend, Ontario, in Canada after fleeing being investigated here in the States. Herb left behind a suicide note where he explained that he was ending his life because of his failed marriage and his failed business. Never confessed to any of the murders. Only after his death was Herb pretty positively linked to not just the victims whose bodies turned up on his property, but also a, a different series of murders that occurred along Interstate 70 in the 1980s and early 90s. From 1980 to 1991, the bodies of 12 men were found in Indiana and Western Ohio, victims dumped in rural areas, most of them found naked or undressed to some degree and had been strangled. All went missing from within a few blocks of an area frequented by gays in Indianapolis. Nine of these men thought to be connected to Herb. One eyewitness identified Herb Baumeister as the man who left a bar in 1983 with victim Michael Riley. Riley found strangled and unclothed, similar to many of the other suspected Dick Meister I-70 strangler victims. Very suspiciously, these murders stopped within months, within weeks, of Herb buying the sprawling 18-acre Fox Hollow Farm property in Westfield. Sure seems like as soon as Herb had the space to start hiding bodies on his own property, instead of leaving them in various places off of the interstate, he did exactly that. So who was Herb Baumeister to those he didn't very likely murder? Courtney Hardwick from In Magazine writes, his community Herb Baumeister was a straight-laced business-owning family man living on his 18-acre estate, Fox Hollow Farms, in Westfield, Indiana. He married his wife, Julie, right out of college, and they had three kids together. But there was another side to him that he kept hidden. Baumeister would often visit gay bars in Indianapolis about a 40-minute drive from where he lived. His wife, Julie Baumeister, would say that Herb was an upstanding citizen and a good father, although he was distant. And she is downplaying how fucking weird he was when she says that. Uh, Julie said she didn't know that Herb was involved in the gay nightlife scene. Indianapolis Monthly wrote in their September 2002 edition, Baumeister contemplates that maybe she was the first victim in her husband's sinister plan. Maybe he selected her as the perfect wife, a naive Indiana girl who still believed in the notion that you grow up, fall in love, and live happily ever after. She and the children were the model citizens Herb needed to hide behind while living his secret life and committing what was nearly the perfect crime again and again and again. Uh, Julie certainly was naive, as you will soon find out. Now, if you want to get a feel for yourself or who Herb was, he randomly was interviewed by a local news crew from Wish TV in Indianapolis in this updated clip, or I'm sorry, not updated, undated, undated clip taken sometime during the last few years of Herb's life. He talks about a dead raccoon along the road near his home. Local residents were upset about the raccoon being painted over by a county paint truck, not moved aside like it should have been. Well, let's let's actually listen to uh, Herb so we can hear this uh, killer's voice. The drive-by striping, <laughs> you know, whatever. Herb Baumeister of Carmel saw it all. I said to my son, they're going to hit that raccoon with a spray gun, and sure enough, they just striped right over its face and neck. You know, didn't even move it, you know, no effort to, you know, get it out of the way. <laughs> so I happened to have a Polaroid with me, so I took a shot of the thing. A raccoon, which met its demise on the yellow line, became one with the paint. 
The raccoon <laughs> has since been removed. This is all that's left. This was just, you know, uh, the painter should have had a chalk line drawn around his career by state officials. There was no excuse for that. I mean, the poor thing deserved a better fate than that. So, I mean, he seems exceptionally normal to me here. Pleasant even. Uh, even knowing what I know about him and, and watching that clip, he seems so fucking likable. Like if he was my neighbor with his, his you know, his personality he's displaying there, uh, I'd like him. I think it was pretty funny that he took a Polaroid of that dead raccoon. I watched this clip over and over, repeating the beginning, especially studying his eyes, his facial expressions, vocal inflections, just looking for some kind of moment of like, aha, right there. That's where the evil was. You, you can see it. You can hear it. No, you can't. To me, nothing about him in this clip seems off or unusual. And by the time he recorded that clip, he likely had killed over two dozen men. And that's so fucking scary. Like, we really don't know who these monsters are. We, we want to tell ourselves that if we listen to enough podcasts or read enough books and watch enough documentaries about these motherfuckers that, you know, we can kind of like familiarize ourselves with uh, little red flags, little, little ticks that, that would, you know, reveal their natures to us. But, it, you know, a quick glance with some of these bastards, there's just, there's just no warning signs. I don't think at all. Uh, after he died, another Wish TV reporter spoke with Randy Hartley, a former co-worker of Herb's from his days at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, one of the many people surprised, shocked to find out he was a serial killer. Hartley felt like he was just a regular dude, said he was, the, uh, he was just a major prankster. And with that in mind, he just, anything for a laugh, he would do. But on the other side, he was still pretty compassionate too. He didn't want to take him too far, you know, or he didn't want to take things too far to extremes to hurt anybody. Again, just, you know, it seemed like a, like a fun dude to, to hang with. Alan Fishburne, another coworker, former coworker interviewed said, I was shocked because no one had heard for the past 15, 16 years. I, I, I found him, you know, as a spontaneous, uh, doing any type of thing person within certain reasons. Even when the cops were looking into him for some murders right at the end of his life, no one in the general public outside of one guy who led the police to Herb and a private investigator he spoke with seemed to think this guy had anything to do with these murders. Part of what helped him avoid public scrutiny uh, was the fact that the killings he committed got almost no press. Because the murder victims were young gay men being killed in a conservative area in the 90s, uh, they just didn't, I don't think, well, in some of them in the 80s, receive as much media attention or sympathy as, you know, say women would have likely received. Joseph Geringer, writing for CrimeLibrary.com in a post titled, Her Baumeister, Skeletons Beyond the Closet, speaks to this, saying, During the first several years of the 1990s, the citizens in and around Indianapolis, Indiana, might have stumbled on a very brief article in the local newspapers about how certain young men were disappearing from the streets of their town never to be seen again. In each case, the episodes mirrored each other. Only the names changed. But the articles grew no larger, nor attracted much attention. All the prodigal sons were gay or were suspected of leaning in that sexual direction. Being gay, they were uh, a coming and yet steadily outcast breed of citizens in a very conservative Bible belt. Even the officials remained lethargic. Common belief was that the victims might simply have gone on to other larger, more glitzy towns like San Francisco or New York, where homosexuality was not considered wayward at all. The only victims here, thought the police, were the families these young men abandoned without a goodbye. The first person to suspect that the missing men were actually murdered was a private detective named Virgil Vandegriff. Virgil seems to have uh, long since retired now. He had a website, allininvestigations.com. That's no longer up and working. Uh, great PI name, by the way. You kidding me? Virgil Vandegriff. Name's Virgil Vandegriff. If someone who doesn't want to be found needs finding. If there's a secret that needs to be told, darkness you want brought out into the light, 
or you have a name that needs a face, well, friend, you've come to the right place. Virgil Vandegrift is all in. Uh, Virgil was the first investigator to think Baumeister was a serial killer. He told Joseph Geringer he fit all the components of a serial killer, among them the ability to keep his crimes in control and silent under an everyday nonchalance. He was a business owner whose store many townspeople frequented. My own office was only a mile and a half away from his place. I never met him from what I understand. He wasn't the type of guy you'd at first suspect of being a sexual psychopath. The danger signals are always there in people of Baumeister's caliber. Trouble is, the public ignores them. In Baumeister's case, even his wife ignored them. Uh, lethargy. It's the serial killer's greatest strength. Uh, I like Virgil's last statement there, right? Lethargy is the serial killer's greatest strength. Man, how many people keep getting away with stuff like that because most of us don't want to take the time to really look into them, right? Even when they do give us some red flags. Like, let's say you don't have any concrete proof that your partner is a fucking serial killer, but you do have an inkling that something isn't right. That certain signs do seem to maybe point to them, possibly being a killer. But also, you love them and your life is intertwined with them. Really fuck up your whole world if they truly were a serial killer, which doesn't give you a lot of incentive to put a lot of work into looking into that. Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. But if you just don't look, then if they get caught later, you can kind of give yourself a pass morally and still feel or at least feign feeling being shocked. And even say a coworker or a neighbor or something seems like they, they might be up to something. So many of us are just so damn busy. Or at least we tell ourselves we're too busy to deal with it, right? Are you really going to take the time to put in the work to seeing if they might truly be a serial killer? Or are you going to go back to watching your TV show or reading your book or working your second job, raising your kids, et cetera, right? I don't, I don't really have much uh, uh, background uh, context other than what I've just said now. I feel like I need to lay out before we get into the timeline. It was the 80s and early 90s. It was Indianapolis. Life was pretty normal. Pretty good in Indy, actually. Reggie Miller was lighting shit up from behind the three-point line for the Pacers and annoying the fuck out of most other NBA All-Stars with his constant obnoxious trash talk. I love Reggie Miller. Uh, The big Circle Center Mall was being built downtown. Local radio station Bob and Tom were cementing themselves as one of America's most beloved morning shows, soon to be syndicated around the nation. The Baltimore Colts had just moved to Indy and brought NFL life to Indiana and the feeling that Indianapolis was truly a major American city. Hall of Fame running back Eric Dickerson was one of the best backs of all time, earning three of his Pro Bowls, trips to the Pro Bowls when he was in Indy. And of course, the Indy 500, billed as the greatest spectacle in racing, was being held every year as it has been since 1911. Vroom, vroom, motherfucker. After years of planning and construction, the 52-story Bank One Center opened in September of 1990, giving the city a much bigger cosmopolitan feel. In 1990, Indianapolis hosted arguably the best concert lineup in America that year at the Hoosier Dome. On April 7th, Farm Aid 4, Guns N' Roses, Bonnie Raitt, John Cougar Mellencamp, Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson, Elton John, Willie Nelson, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Bruce Hornsby, John Denver, and the list goes on and on. Life was good. The area was growing. The economy was was booming. The crimes of Herb Baumeister did not lead to the city or even any of its many neighborhoods into living in fear. His crimes were not even front-page news until after he died. They had largely, sadly, gone unnoticed but we're going to notice them today. Let's uncover these crimes and the life of Herb Baumeister in today's Times Like Timeline before digging into the haunted legacy of Fox Hollow Farms after the timeline. All this right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. 
A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. 
There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Appreciate you listening to those sponsored deals, Meat Sacks. And now it's truly Time Suck time. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Quick note on today's info, uh, it's garbage. You probably shouldn't listen to this podcast because you're not going to be able to rely on anything I fucking tell you. No, that's not true. Uh, no, dates from one source to the next are very inconsistent with old dirty dickmeister's dirty deeds. We went with the dates that were the most consistent across numerous sources uh, or the most recent. Some of the information regarding his victims uh, also varied quite a bit, especially since he was never tried you know, in court. Again, we went with the info that seemed the most reliable and consistent uh, for the body count totals. You'll notice that the totals I give will differ from most sources on the internet. Well, uh, they're different because there's been a string of new local news articles and local news reports coming out of Indianapolis just this past week uh, when still more remains were uncovered on his old property. And the very recently updated totals they presented seem like the most accurate information to me. And that's that's what I'll be sharing with you. So here we go. Herbert Richard Baumeister, born April 7th, 1947. All the sources seem to agree on that. According to Geringer's article, Herbert was born in the Butler-Tarkington neighborhood of Indianapolis. Indianapolis has a million different neighborhoods, all named neighborhoods. Uh, The neighborhood's name comes from a combination of Butler from Butler University, which has its campus in the neighborhood, and from the name of the famous writer Booth Tarkington, who lived in the neighborhood for 23 years in his country estate until his death in 1946. I'd actually never heard of Booth Tarkington, but he is one of the only four novelists to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction more than once, along with William Faulkner, John Updike, and Colson Whitehead. I've heard of at least two of those guys. Uh, he was best known for the magnificent Ambersons and Alice Adams. Didn't read them. Uh, his remains now rest in the pretty badass-looking Tarkington Jameson Mausoleum at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis. This neighborhood began as a farming settlement in the 1840s near what is now the intersection of 38th Street and Illinois Street called Mapleton connected to Indy via a railway system in the, eight, in the 1860s. Used to be a fucking shit ton of maple trees in the area. When Herb was born there, the neighborhood was very upper middle class. Some wealthy uh, people living there as well. Very nice neighborhood. It still uh, seems very nice. At some point in Herbert's childhood, the Baumeister family eventually moved to Washington Township, one of nine townships of Marion County, Indiana, located entirely within the boundaries of Indianapolis, comprising a good chunk of the northern central area of the city. The popular Broad Ripple area of the city is located within it. Uh, used to be a comedy club there called Crackers that I played so many times. Fun area. A lot of good memories from Broad Ripple, especially since Herb uh, never even killed me one time there. That helped me have a good time for sure. Uh, he, was, he was dead by the time I went there. Not far from Butler University, uh, just a little north of the Butler-Tarkington neighborhood. So the family didn't move far and always lived in a nice area when Herbert was growing up. Herb's parents were Dr. Herbert E. Baumeister and Elizabeth Baumeister. Uh, Herbert Sr. was, I guess he wasn't really, I mean, I'll call him Sr. for differentiation, but they had different middle names. He was an uh, 
uh, anesthesiologist who graduated with his uh, undergraduate degree from Valparaiso University, Valpo, baby, in Northwest Indiana near Chicago. And then in 1950, graduated from the Indiana University School of Medicine, which is in downtown Indianapolis, which is how the Baumeisters ended up where Herb grew up. Uh, his mom, Elizabeth, will be a stay-at-home mom and really focus on making sure she raised a prolific, nearly undetectable serial killer. Her other kids wouldn't take to her lessons, but Herb was a good student and paid attention. I don't know anything about Elizabeth. Sources are pretty quiet about who she was. Uh, extending his schooling, Herb Sr. would serve in the Army during World War II. No idea what he did in the service. After finishing medical school, Herb Sr. worked as an anesthesiologist at Winona Memorial Hospital from 1965 to 1985. That hospital was demolished in 2011 after sitting vacant since 2004. Herb Sr. also worked at Methodist Hospital just outside of downtown Indy from 1957 to 1968. Uh, dude made real good money. Today, the average anesthesiologist in the U.S. makes between $310,000 and $520,000 a year. On average. Averaging in the 400K range. The Baumeister family grew up upper middle class, if not outright rich. Uh, Herb was the oldest of four kids. His sister, Barbara, Born in 1948, younger brother Brad, born in 1954, and another brother Richard, another dick, born in 1956. Quite a bit of dick in the suck today. It's very dick-heavy suck, which is great because you can never have enough dick. Uh, Herb's wife, Julie, later told People Magazine that Herb grew up in a beaver-cleaver kind of home in Indianapolis. Herb was a normal child, but he did begin showing signs of some antisocial behavior by his adolescence. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of concrete examples of this antisocial behavior. I'll go over some in a bit, but mostly it's just sources describing young Herb as uh, weird, strange, eccentric, you know, antisocial, loner, not popular, etc. Dickmeister was always, it seems, a bit different. We also have no details from his time in grade school or junior high. His family pretty tight-lipped about his life after he shot himself in the head, following the police beginning to look into arresting him for being a serial killer. And then because he was never formally charged, never proven in court to have been a serial killer, no one close to him seemed real interested in speaking to journalists in regards to a book or an article about him, you know, being a killer, living a secret life, which I get. 1961, Herb attended high school at North Central High in Washington Township, north of Broad Ripple. It's a pretty new school at that time. It opened in 1953. Herbert, I do wonder if he went by Herbert. I've never met a Herbert. I've met some people who call themselves Herb, but not Herbert, uh, participated in the biology, geology, government, international relations, and chess clubs. And he also, like most kids, said some weird shit. Uh, maybe weirder than average since he was blatantly mentally ill, as uh, I'll go over soon. Uh, Herb's friend recalled that he used to, quote, ponder what it would be like to taste human urine. Uh, drinking that hot, fresh apple cider. If that's the main thing an old friend remembered about him. I wonder if he pondered about that a lot. Right, like a defining aspect of his personality. What's going on, Herb? Oh, uh, just pondering. What you pondering about? Uh, pondering about what pee tastes like. Again? I just can't stop pondering on it. Is it bitter? Sweet? Sour? It's almost all I think about. What does pee taste like? Does it differ from person to person, day to day, meal to meal? Uh, does lady piss taste different than boy piss? Uh, does black piss taste different than white piss? Uh, so much piss. So little time. Uh, also in high school, it seems that Herb found a dead crow on the road one day and put it on his teacher's desk when she wasn't looking. And instead of everyone laughing at such a funny joke, everyone was disturbed. More of a dude, what the fuck kind of reaction as opposed to, ha ha, oh, good one, Herbert. Yeah, you really got her. Sometime around this incident, Herb's father took him in for some psychological testing. Apparently, this was not an isolated incident. 
Uh, and he wasn't just acting up at school. He was acting up at home. Herb Sr. had his son examined because he was, quote, irresponsible and often combative. Herb was diagnosed with schizophrenia with possibly more than one personality. And that is not a light mental illness diagnosis. It's a bummer no one in his family was really willing to talk about what the fuck Herb was up to as a kid because I feel like there was a, uh, a lot of juicy stories. I would be shocked if there were not family tales about him, you know, torturing pets or, I don't know, molesting a neighbor kid, like serious shit. There was no further documentation of his mental health struggles while growing up uh, outside of this. Not until we get to young adulthood. Uh, Herb's friend, Bill Donovan, recalled that Herb didn't fit in during high school, partially because he preferred books to sports. Quote, he just didn't blend in. He wasn't a basketball-obsessed Hoosier. Donovan also said that Herb didn't date anyone. This is probably because he was a closeted homosexual. And that is for sure going to fuck up your dating life a bit in a conservative city in the early 1960s. Also, maybe he was still piss-obsessed. Maybe that, maybe that added to his dating woes. Hey, Susie, want to grab a malt after school on Friday? Oh, sure, Herbert. That'd be swell. And then maybe we can go catch a movie. I'd love to, Herbert. And then maybe we could drive to that spot in Broad Ripple where, you know, people park their cars and, um, yeah, Herbert? Well, I'm embarrassed to ask. Herbert, I'd love to park and make out with you if that's what you're asking. Oh, great, Susie. That's just grand. But that's not really what I was hoping for. I was hoping we could piss in each other's mouths and talk about what it tastes like. And then you could put on a strap on and peg me and pretend to be Biff from the football team. I don't know. Uh, 1965, after graduating high school, Herb studied at Indiana University for one semester in Bloomington. A little over an hour's, little over an hour's drive from where he went to high school. Uh, Herb chose anatomy as his major at Indiana University. Some sources say he was pressured by his father to do so, to follow him into the medical field. But that young Herbert didn't want to. From 1965 to 1970, he attended school sporadically, sometimes for a full, full academic year, just a semester, sometimes would take uh, an entire year off. And again, I feel like there's a lot of stories from this time in his life that no one talked about. From 1966 to 1967, while taking some time away from school, Herbert worked as a copy clerk in classified advertising at the Indianapolis Star and Indianapolis News. Adding evidence to claims that Herbert was eccentric, Herb's coworkers there, uh, one of his, his coworkers there, uh, Gary Donna, former ad rep for the Indianapolis Star, recalled a time when they were planning to go to a football scrimmage at Indiana University, excuse me, and Herb offered to drive everyone in his hearse. Seems like the kind of thing that someone legitimately cool but eccentric could pull off as a joke or something that someone genuinely creepy would do. Uh, Donna said Herb was eager to please but eccentric. He told People Magazine, I remember friends saying, what's the deal with this guy? And I just said, well, Herb's just Herb. Sounds like he was creepy. If they're asking what his deal was. And he had to say, well, Herb's just Herb. Uh, Gary Donna also thought that Herb was sensitive about the way his superiors viewed him. Allegedly, Herb got the uh, job at the paper because his dad was well-respected in the community and pulled some strings. And it bothered him to have others think that he was only working there because daddy got him the job. Also, uh, Gary Donna. That's an odd name, right? I mean, male first name, female first name for last name. You just just don't come across a lot of Gary Donnas or like Larry Michelle's or Roger Janet's very often. Uh, in 1968 at IU, Herb met his future wife, Juliana Julie Sater, through a mutual friend. They were attracted to each other because they both shared the same conservative values. Or at least Julie did, genuinely, and her pretended to. Julie said they met in 1968 at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, where IU was playing that year. Julie said about meeting Herb, he was nice, fun to be with, and good looking. We both liked cars, and we were both young Republicans. Julie said in her interview with A&E Investigative Reports that she and Herb uh, never 
ever engaged in any of the drug use in the 1960s. She and Herb spent their time driving around, maybe getting a Coke here or there. Well, what a couple of fucking duds. Uh, best time to do drugs in American history? These two are occasionally having a soda. Oh, living on the edge. I bet sometimes they even had milkshakes. Like on Friday nights, you know, when they, when they you know, could risk all that extra sugar and not worry about it affecting, you know, classes the next day. Uh, I also like that she said they liked cars. Not sports cars, not antique cars, expensive cars, European cars, just cars. I know I'm nitpicking here. And she probably was just speaking quickly. But adding that to the occasionally driving around and getting a soda, they just seem so fucking boring. Highly doubt he was driving her around in that hearse. I feel like she would have mentioned that. Uh, I've seen interviews with Julie and combined with what I've learned about her in various articles as well, she does seem like the perfect wife for a serial killer. She just seems like this incredibly subservient uh, Stepford wife kind of personality. Yeah. Julie, it's 7 a.m. Where's my coffee? Oh, sorry, dear. Uh, Coming right away, dear. We were out of beans and I had to run down to the pantry. I won't let it happen again. And my eggs, Julie, over medium? These yolks are hard. Oh, goodness, Herbert. You poor thing. I'll make you two new eggs at once. I must have gotten distracted because of the coffee beans. It's quite all right, dear. No, it's not. But I'll make it all right, Herbert. What a terrible start to your day I'm giving you. Uh, Julie said about the relationship, I think we had very family-oriented values. You know, we didn't have candlelight dinners and we didn't run off on romantic weekends together. We were much more about family love. Sure, Herbert never brought flowers home for me or, or ever told me I was pretty or ever passionately kissed me or pulled my hair back and fucked me till my thighs quivered. We didn't have that kind of love. We had a better kind. The kind where you both enjoy sitting in the same room and watching The Price of Right together and sleeping in separate rooms later. Uh, November 1971, 24-year-old Herb Baumeister marries Julie Sater. Julie was also likely 24. Can't find a birth date for her, but in an Indianapolis newspaper article from 1996, she's listed as being 49 years old four months after Herb died when he was 49 years old. Uh, These two would go on to have three children together. Their daughter, uh, Marie, a.k.a. Mary, born in 1979, their son, Eric, born in 1981, and their daughter, Emily, born in 1984. And it is a fucking miracle that they had three kids. This blows me away. Julie would say later uh, that in 25, just like, like weeks away from 25 years of marriage, that she and Herb had sex exactly six times total, less than once every two years. That is insane, if true. And I don't know why would she lie, why she would lie about that. Herbert, hot damn, was he a shooter? Fucks his wife six times, has three kids? Man, a couple of fertile myrtles. Dude had a baby cannon for a dick. Also feels like Julie is a settler, right? Really settling here. Can you imagine being cool marrying someone so not into you sexually that they only fuck you six times in 25 years? And they got married young. They should have fucked more than six times on the honeymoon. Doesn't seem like Julie set her sights really high for what she wanted in life. Passionate love? No, not for me. I'll take a guy who wants to sometimes drink a soda and almost never fuck me. As long as my parents approve and he has a good steady job, who cares? Living the dream. Living a sad, sleepwalking through life, existing instead of living dream. On their book about Baumeister, Where the Bodies Are Buried, authors Fanny Weinstein and Melinda Wilson wrote that Julie also literally never saw Herb naked. Like not one time, ever. During their entire marriage. That is so weird to me. They got married in 1971, not fucking 1671. Julie said Herb dressed in the bathroom and when it came time to go to bed, he would always put on pajamas before slipping between the sheets. Dear God, I do not understand her. Neither does uh, Lucifina. 
I mean, I understand him. Herb is a gay sociopath who wanted a beard to look straight to make mommy and daddy happy, and he found one. But her, how fucking sad. I don't know, maybe she was also gay, and he was Herbert Beard. Right? It's possible that they were both repressing their true sexual natures, and their relationship was convenient and a, and a scam, and, and you know, uh, kind of from both sides. Julie told People Magazine that she and Herb didn't have many friends and showered their attention on their children. I still can't believe they had three kids with such a little fucking. Makes no sense to me. Julie said that Herb was a dedicated father and was involved in their children's lives. He chose their preschool, uh, helped buy gifts for them, and helped make their lunches. She said, we did everything together. He would push the mower, and I would trim the bushes. Mostly I would trim my own bush. <laughs> and diddle it, of course. God knows Herbert wasn't going to touch it. He hated puss. He could only get hard enough to put it in my pussy if I spoke in a deep voice and begged him to fuck my man butt. I may have added that last part. Uh, in early 1972, Herb now attends Butler University for one semester. Herb's Bureau of Motor Vehicles application later will state that he graduated from Butler with a degree in uh, zoology. Why zoology? Sources do not say. Uh, He would never end up working with animals. So much mystery with Dick Meister. And he also lied about graduating. He never graduated. Never had a degree. Uh, Late 1972, Herb gets a job as a temporary clerk typist at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. He'll work there for the next 13 years. Eventually, will earn up to $30,472 a year as a program director of their cash and audit department. In 1985, when he's making over $30,000 a year, that would equate to around $80,000 a year today. While Herb is working there in the 1970s, Julie is working as a high school English teacher. Julie, like, uh, or excuse me, just like with the newspaper, it seems like Herb was hired at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles thanks to his father. Sounds like Herb uh, was a fucking mess who was an- unable to get a job on his own. Uh, Sometime right around getting this job, just weeks or months into his marriage, Herb, who was a mess, uh, became very depressed. And then in 1972, either shortly before or after he got this job, I'm guessing maybe in between graduating from, well, not graduating, in between being done with Butler and and getting his job, Herb's father had him uh, involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital for 60 days. Julie said that she was in favor of this, uh, but she will later say that she didn't know exactly why he was put in or what he worked on while he was committed. She later just said that Herb was hurting and needing help. So why was he hurting? Because he knew he was gay and had just gotten married to a woman? Timing seems to indicate that may have been a possibility. Uh, Herb was diagnosed this time with obsessive compulsive personality disorder instead of schizophrenia. Julie knew he was hospitalized, obviously, but uh, wouldn't learn about his actual diagnosis until after his death. After this hospitalization, there was no talk of him getting any therapy, so I doubt he dealt with his shit like he should have. Uh, just pushed whatever he was struggling with down, down, down. And then later, sometimes that shit would come up, 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 and maybe someone would die. By the late 70s, Julie quits her job as a high school English teacher to focus on building her family after the birth of their first child, daughter Mary, in 1979. From the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, we get a few more insights into Herb's inconsistent personality. Susan Pierce, Herb's subordinate there, said he was an excellent boss, but meticulous. According to Weinstein and Wilson's book, other people Herb worked uh, with did not think he was excellent, but rather unstable. The author said he often began ranting and raving at fellow employees for no apparent reason. Yeah, because he's fucking mentally ill. Some of Herb's coworkers also said that he was a perfectionist given to sudden unprovoked rages. The way Herb is described varies a lot from person to person. Many people knew him as a business owner and devoted family man, but the police say that he was hot-headed, a boaster who was always trying to impress others. Some described him as eccentric. Others said he was quiet and kept to himself. Still others described him as gregarious, a kind, very social person who went out of his way to help others. The Indianapolis Star wrote, 
Even when he died, Baumeister's life was one of opposites. He lived on an expensive piece of property in Westfield. Oh yeah, they said in that um, uh, interview, they said Carmel is where he lived. The local news uh, reported there had it wrong. He was not in Carmel. He was in uh, Westfield, which is close. But anyway, even when he died, Baumeister's life was one of opposites. You know, he lived on an expensive piece of property in Westfield and sent his three children to private schools. But he also ran a thrift store business that was in financial trouble and recently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Hamilton County Sheriff Sergeant Ken Wisman told the Indianapolis Star one person was sporadic, hot-headed, and would go off for no apparent reason on tangents. He would try to impress people, wanted to make them think he was more important than he was, even when his business was going downhill. The other Mr. Baumeister was the family man who wanted to supply the best for his family that he possibly could. Some people describe Herb as dressing simply, said he didn't talk about his family much. Others said he wore $300 shoes, was doting to his family, and meticulous about his appearance. This dude was all over the fucking place. Not really surprised though, right? Again, he struggled with serious mental health problems. And on top of that, lived an extreme double life for most of his adult life. While a lot of people describe Herb as quiet and professional, the, this is also the guy who once sent Christmas cards of himself and another man dressed in drag as a joke that apparently his coworkers did not understand or find funny. I have to wonder if he was also bipolar. And as I mentioned up top, uh, he once pissed on his boss's desk. That's pretty extreme. Weinstein and Wilson wrote, it was no secret around the office who the culprit was. Still, Herb somehow managed to avoid being fired until he urinated on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana. And you know what? That tracks, actually. The kid who pondered a lot about piss, tasted how, how piss tasted, right? Now pisses on a boss's desk and then pisses on a letter to the governor. Herb was all over the place, except when it came to piss. He was consistently deviant where piss was concerned. Uh, also, he got fired in 1985, the year following the birth of his first, uh, excuse me, third child. His wife has not worked for years at this point. Uh, he's the breadwinner. He makes a solid living, but he's not making crazy money. Unless he had outside help, no way they're saving all kinds of money. And I'm guessing pretty dependent on Herb's paychecks to pay the bills every month. And then this dude goes and gets fired for pissing on a letter to the governor after pissing on his boss's desk. That's fucking reckless and beyond embarrassing. There's no way he told his wife why he really got fired. Was there? How was your day, honey? Not great, Jules. My boss, man, did he completely overreact. Oh, no, dear. I'm so sorry. What happened? Oh, oh well, he, he walked in on me pissing on a letter to the governor and because someone pissed on his desk recently, he's very sensitive to piss and totally fired me. Oh, that's terrible, dear. Oh, well, I don't want to work at a place where they're so repressive about piss anyway. I bet no one there even ever ponders about what piss tastes like. They're so anti-urine. Uh, after Herb was fired from the bureau, he got a job at a thrift store which will soon inspire him to start his own thrift store business. That seems like a super random turn of events, right? BMV to thrift shop clerk. I know that thrift stores don't pay much now. How did a father of three pay the family's bills on thrift store money? I feel like after going over these notes several times before recording this and reading and watching everything I could find on this dipshit, trying to understand his life, make sense of a lot of inconsistent sources, I feel like his dad probably was supplementing his income for a long time, for most of his life. Some kind of outside assistance feels like it went on. And again, I feel like the family has so many stories they haven't shared about this guy. Uh, his wife, Julie, was a member of the Indianapolis Junior League when he uh, starts working at the thrift store and t- dreams of owning a thrift store business. The Indianapolis Junior League, described on their website now as an organization of women committed to promoting volunteerism, developing the potential of women, and improving the community through the effective action and leadership of trained volunteers whose purpose is exclusively educational and charitable. And she bought into Herb's thrift store dream and thought it would be a great way they could help contribute to the Indianapolis Children's Bureau. That organization recently changed their name to Firefly Children and Family Alliance in Indy. According to their website, Firefly's programs focus on child abuse prevention, 
Family Preservation and Reunification, Youth Placement and Recovery Services. So it sounds like they're wonderful people doing great shit around this time. And they were. Uh, Herb was also very, very likely a monster at this time, starting to do horrible shit uh, as well. Actually, he may have been doing monster shit for about five years by this point. Let's back up a bit. In the early 80s, men started turning up dead along I-70 between Indiana and Ohio. Men, a lot of investigators now feel confident that Herb Baumeister was murdering. A task force would eventually be assembled to solve these murders, and they would dub the killer the I-70 Strangler. After Herb died, looking into his uh, credit card transactions and travel history corroborated by Julie and others, uh, all of his um, travels will match perfectly with the following murders. On June 16th, 1980, less than a year after the birth of Herb's first child, 15-year-old Michael Petrie was found naked in a rural area of Hamilton County, Indiana. Michael was a sex worker, spent a lot of time at gay bars in downtown Indianapolis, bars that Herb investigators would also later uncover also spent a lot of time in. Michael's cause of death was undetermined, and while the coroner would rule out strangulation, some think the coroner got it wrong. Michael went missing on June 7th. Uh, on uh, June 10th, he would be seen in a parked car with a man on Market Street at College Avenue. June 11th was seen at the uh, Monument Circle in downtown Indianapolis, and then his death would barely make the news. Uh, two months later, August 8th, 1981, 25-year-old Gary D. Davis found dead in his home in Meridian Woods, or excuse me, Meridian Woods. Gary had definitely been strangled, also found naked. And he'd been tied up. Shortly before he was killed, shortly before he was killed, uh, Gary told someone he was going to the airport to pick up a friend that he'd recently had an argument with. Following summer, June first, nineteen eighty-two, twenty-seven-year-old Dennis A. Uh, Brodge was found dead in a ditch in the ninety-four hundred block of River Road in Marion County. Last seen getting into a car in front of the downtown library, which was a known pickup spot for sex workers at that time. His cause of death undetermined. Was found naked. An unidentified man was found the following month, July 20th, 1982, in Dark County, Ohio. He was estimated to be uh, between 20 and 30 years old. His cause of death unknown at the time. The article that references his death gave almost no details. 22-year-old Maurice Taylor found dead the very next day, July 21st, 1982, in Weasel Creek. Back in Weasel Creek. What a great creek name. In Hamilton County, Indiana. Let's go fishing in Weasel Creek. Uh, Maurice was found in six inches of water. He was missing his shirt. Coroner suspected he was strangled, but couldn't declare an official cause of death. Maurice was homeless, slept in the boiler room of an apartment building in Indy. The building manager said Maurice was a little weak in the mind. We let him stay here because the owner didn't want him to freeze. He lived here for two years, if you can call that living. Man, poor bastard. Maine has tried to give him a job removing roofing shingles, but they had to constantly monitor him because he would tear the wooden nails off of the roof. Uh, Maurice visited his mom on Sundays, who lived with a woman named Jane Wall. Jane once tried to give Maurice slippers and sneakers. He only took the slippers, told her to return the sneakers and give the money to his mom. Maurice was friendly, never made trouble. He would leave for days at a time, but he always came back, you know, until he didn't. Maurice, also a known sex worker in downtown Indianapolis. According to Josh Thomas, former publisher of Gay Beat magazine, who wrote about the I-70 murders in 1990, Maurice was not identified for eight months because no one reported him missing. Maurice's mother was in a mental uh, institution, uh, hospital, when he went missing and wasn't able to report him until she was discharged. So this poor family sounds like they had a lot more shit to deal with than, the, uh, than most of the rest of us ever will. 14-year-old Delvoid Baker, the youngest and only black I-70 strangler victim, was found in a ditch near a river in Hamilton County on October 3rd, 1982. He was found partially unclothed. Delvoid did have marks on his neck, but according to Detective Jim Reinbarger, uh, that force would not have strangled him, but some others disagree. Uh, Delvoid was only an eighth grader. Delvoid was very involved in his church as a young child. His adoptive mother, Pearlie Townsend, said whenever Delvoid did something wrong, 
He'd start crying and ask me to pray for him. Del Void not only lived a short life, he lived a damn hard one. Some people, man, the hands that they are dealt to start their lives off are just so fucking tragic. Uh, he was one of five kids, but his mom didn't want to keep custody of him. So Pearlie Townsend took him uh, when he was a toddler. Del Void worked a paper route, but he liked to spend more than he saved. Eh, what kid doesn't? His adopted mom told him uh, not to spend money on nonsense. So this good kid started bringing home groceries. She said Del Void was too trusting of strangers and would get into someone's car without hesitation. She tried to warn him saying, Del Void, you can't do that. People will do nasty things to you. And then unfortunately, that's exactly what would happen. Devoid left home at 4 p.m. on October 1st. His parents said he was riding his bike to the city center on the night he disappeared. Called him at 10.30, said he'd be home late because he was going to the movies. His parents were worried because they knew he didn't have money with him. What his parents did not know was that Delvoid and a friend had been going to gay bars for three months. The friend reported that he and Delvoid did sex work and charged $20 to $23. That's a random, very specific total per night. Fucking again, this kid is in eighth grade. On October 2nd, 1982, Delvoid and his 16-year-old friend went in front of the Central Library, where, again, male sex workers were known to frequent and find uh, clients. Delvoid was seen getting into a blue van near University Park. The driver was a white man, approximately 30 years old, with a bushy mustache. Herb was 35 at that time, but did look younger than he was. No word on whether or not he had a mustache, but it was 1982. And he was a 35-year-old white dude who frequented gay bars, so odds pretty good. He was rocking a sweet stash. Also in 1982, an officer task force, aid officer task force, was created by the Indianapolis Police Department to investigate this series of murders, all of which occurred not far from I-70. Law enforcement right began now talking about the I-70 strangler. But it doesn't seem these killings ever warranted any front page news. Following spring, May 28, 1983, 22-year-old Michael Andrew Riley goes missing after going to the Vogue Theater, a nightclub in the Broad Ripple neighborhood of Indy. Uh, that comedy club I used to play at uh, called Crackers, right next door to the Vogue. And I always thought the Vogue would be a cooler venue to play because it was cooler. Uh, intimate venue, 900-person capacity rock club. A lot of cool bands have played there over the years. The Red Hot Chili Peppers played there back in 1987. That would have been a fucking great show. Johnny Cash. Played there in 1995, Snoop Dogg, White Stripes, Willie Nelson, all kinds of acts. Cannibal Corpse just played there last week. And one of my old favorites, G-Love and the Special Sauce. Actually, I think it's just G-Love though. Sometimes he works solo, sometimes he's got the trio. Uh, Going to be there in January. Anyway, back in 1983, Michael was last seen leaving the Vogue with an unknown man. A week later on June 5th, Michael's body found in a drainage ditch in Hancock County. Naked from the waist up, cause of death, strangulation. Perpetrator most likely used a towel or something similar. On June 8th, 1983, investigators determined that Michael was dead for four to seven days before he was found. Coroner Charles Glidewell said something unknown was taken and wrapped around his neck until he died. Michael was dating a 40-year-old woman at the time of his death. He worked as a vending machine route salesman. Very specific job. Police said Michael was probably off on a holiday when he went missing, but his mother didn't believe that because his car, motorcycle, and checkbook were still at home. Also in the summer of 1983, the FBI now joins the investigation into trying to find the I-70 Strangler. June 12th, 1983, the Indianapolis Star reports that the FBI has determined that two men are responsible for at least eight murders in the past three years. One suspect who stabbed at least four men to death. Men I did not mention uh, was thought to be white, 20 to 30 years old, working a low-skilled labor job, a fan of military paraphernalia, and leading a healthy lifestyle. The other killer... Uh, whose victims I did just go over, not all of them originally assigned to this killer back in the summer of 1983, uh, described as white, approximately 45 years old, overweight, worked a high-paying job, respected by his community, thought to maybe be married, but had no intimacy with his wife. He was suspected of killing partially over the shame and guilt he felt because of his attraction to men and boys. 
This suspect now thought to be her Baumeister. Profile not, not too far off from the truth. Fucking nailed that no intimacy part six times. 25 years. Uh, on July 6, 1983, a now 17-member task force of Central Indiana Police Agencies begins reviewing their reports of over eight cases of murdered men since 1980. One of their goals was also to improve contacts with the Indianapolis gay community. They set up a phone hotline to receive future tips. Uh, jumping ahead two years now, right around the time Herbert gets fired from the BMV for causing some piss problems. On May 9th, 1985, the body of 17-year-old Eric Rodiger found in a creek bed east of Lewisburg, Ohio. Been missing for two days. Witnesses last saw Eric at a bus stop accepting a ride instead of getting on the bus. He had been strangled with a rope. Eric was also missing his shirt like several of the other victims. Unlike the other victims, at least what was published about them, he had definitively been sexually assaulted. At the, at the time of his death, Eric was trying to get a summer job, but then never showed up to his three interviews on May 7th. He's one of four children, described as a good kid, fun to be around. Eric's father said that he wasn't gay, but he did attract some very strange people. I also said he didn't approve of Eric's friends and said I wouldn't be surprised at anything they might do to pick up money for drugs. So maybe as the phrase goes, maybe he was uh, gay for pay. Eric's sister said he was, quote, troubled and confused and died before he could get help. A Preble County, Ohio investigator and coroner, Dave Lindloff, now becomes involved in the I-70 case. Over the next five years, three more victims will be found in Preble County near I-70. On July 30th, 1985, Warner Brothers Records releases the hit single, No Looking Back. I can't return Rivers will run Bridges will burn I'm not sure just how No looking back now I can't hold on I can't return Bridges will burn I'm not sure just how no looking back now. No looking back now. No looking back now. Uh, yeah, that was Michael motherfucking McDonald. Rejoice for it is Triple M. Forgot about that one. Such a good track. Now, what did that hurt? What did that have to do with uh, Herb Baumeister? Who fucking cares? It was fun. Back to Herb now. September 3rd, 1985. Herbert gets into a little trouble with Johnny Law. He got charged with drinking his own piss in public. Misdemeanor. You can drink it at home, but you can't drink it out around uh, town. He was almost charged with a felony because they caught him drinking it from the source, but his daddy stepped in, got the charges reduced. Herbert had figured out that if you could, uh, you know, figure out how to uh, pee and pee hard while you had a boner, you could shoot it right into your mouth. He called it uh, taking a shot of that wood cider. That never happened that I have proof for. Uh, I'll calm down for a bit and refocus now, I promise. No, he committed a hit and run while drinking and driving. Drinking alcohol, not piss, as far as I know. Uh, he'll not get into any serious trouble, though. So I wonder if Daddy uh, stepped in again. Uh, six months later, March 27th, 1986, a warrant is filed for Herb Baumeister's arrest now on charges of auto theft and conspiracy to commit theft. Wish I knew more about this. Dick Meister, after a one-day trial, will be found not guilty of these crimes. Later in 1986, on August 17th, 29-year-old Michael Allen Glenn is found in his underwear in a creek bed near Eaton, Ohio. Eaton just a few miles south of I-70. Three boys out jogging found his body. Michael had been strangled with rope. Michael Glenn grew up in Kansas City and Indianapolis. He was his parents' only child. Served two years in the National Guard, worked as a laborer, and lived in a trailer park in Indianapolis. Since he didn't live with his parents, no one knows the exact day he went missing. His mom last heard from him in uh, early May of 1986 when he sent her a Mother's Day card. 
and his body wouldn't be identified until the fall of 1989. Uh, November 12th, excuse me, 1986, Herb's father, Dr. Herbert E. Baumeister, dies at the age of 66 in the hospital. His obituary does not list an official cause of death. Does say he was a member of Pilgrim Lutheran Church, the American Medical Association, the Indiana Medical Association, the Marion County Medical Association, fucking every medical association he could fill out an application for, and the International Research Society of uh, Anesthesiologists. Also once the president of the Indianapolis Society of Anesthesiologists. This guy liked joining clubs. Uh, there was also a request for donations to be made to the IU Foundation for Heart Research in his obituary, so I'm guessing he died of a heart attack. Uh, what's Herbert going to do now with daddy not around to help him get more jobs and uh, totally speculating, but I feel like Herbie was uh, daddy's problem child. What's going to do when uh, daddy's not around to help get him out of trouble? On October 15th, 1987, 21-year-old James Robbins goes missing after leaving his mom's Indianapolis home around 10 p.m. He walked to the south side of the city. On October 17th, James was found naked with strangulation marks in a drainage ditch in Shelby County, Indiana, near Gwynville. Uh, a group of people preparing to play, quote, war games found his body. Holy shit. Can you imagine going to play some war games in the woods and coming across a fucking dead body? Hey, time out, guys. Time out. Who wasn't paying attention when we clearly went over the rules? I clearly said there would be no actual killing. War games, guys. Games. And what the fuck is going on with the raping? When some of you agreed to role play as Japanese soldiers fighting World War II... I did not think you would get that into character. JK. Ah, come on. A little callback to a few weeks ago. Uh, this case was linked to numerous other I-70 strangler killings. In 1988 now, Herb and Julie found uh, open their first Save-A-Lot thrift store in Indianapolis. Uh, that year, uh, Herb and Julie started Thrift Management Incorporated, a for-profit organization which operated their Save-A-Lot thrift stores. How did they get the money for this with Herb working at the thrift store and Julie not working? Well, Herb and Julie borrowed $4,000 from Herb's mom, Elizabeth, to start the business. That makes uh, a bit of sense, but $4,000 to open a fucking, that's all it took? Four grand must have went a lot farther in 1988 than it does now. And it did. 1988, the median home price in the U.S. was about $110,000. Now it's about $428,000, which is insane. I guess maybe $4,000 could be enough to get you started on a, on a lease for a thrift store business. Still seems like a tiny amount to start a business, though. Uh, Julie and Herb would eventually own three stores. Save a lot would uh, sell secondhand clothing and for a time would donate $50,000 annually to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. So they did some good. Save a lot had a contract with the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. Uh, I mean, they had a lot of incentive to raise money for them because the inventory at Save a lot belonged to the Children's Bureau. And then they would receive a percentage of the proceeds when it was sold. So people would give clothing to the Children's Bureau and then Herb and his wife, Julie, would sell it in their Save a lot store. It was a very popular store. Herb and Julie uh, earned $50,000 in their first year of business, which was almost double the median household income in the U.S. back at that time. Obviously, that's changed a lot now. One former employee said that Herb and Julie considered it an upscale thrift store. Save a lot, even won an Indianapolis Monthly Magazine Award in 1992 for best place to buy used jeans. Herb is described as being a very uh, non-traditional boss here. He often asked one. Uh, he often asked employees to drink beer with him at Save a Lot during business hours. Also, uh, almost exclusively, according to some old local news footage I watched, hired teenage boys or young men in their 20s. And for some reason, often called his place Waco, as in the cult compound, which is a little weird. Also, according to an indie newspaper article, uh, Herb's behavior changed in his new business when he worked at the bureau, right? When he's working at the, for the government, 
He talked about his wife and kids a lot, even brought the kids to work. But at Save-A-Lot, he suddenly stops talking about his personal life. And employees notice that he starts leaving for hours at a time during the day to do God knows what. Seems like he maybe really begins to kind of double down on his uh, double life now. Something that Julie did not seem psychologically equipped to question or put a stop to. John Egloff, the Baumeister's lawyer, said in uh, uh, this book about Herb, Where the Bodies Are Buried, published in 1998, Herb called the shots and Julie always went along for the ride. Whenever they disagreed about what should be done with respect to a particular matter, Herb would basically take over the conversation. He'd say, Julie, that's not what we're going to do. And then Julie deferred to Herb, even if she wasn't very happy about it. Again, so subservient. Just along for Herb's ride. Uh, The business was successful at first, but things will quickly go downhill after a few years. Julie said that working long hours, parenting, and financial troubles would lead to a kind of burnout. Meanwhile, bodies of young men keep turning up that will later be attributed to Herb's likely victim count. In May of 1999, John Paul Talbot found strangled near a stream in Defiance County, Ohio. This body quite a ways from I-70, but the task force still includes it. No word in sources on whether or not the body was clothed. August 12, 1989, the body of 26-year-old Stephen L. Elliott found in a rural area of Preble County, Ohio, near I-70. Stephen had been wearing his underwear only and strangled most likely with a rope. Stephen's father expressed disappointment with his son's sexuality in a 1996 Indianapolis Star article saying, it wasn't supposed to be made public. Even some of our family didn't know what he was. He said he refused to forgive Stephen for being gay. Damn. Stephen was upset by his father's rejection and once told him, I don't know why you won't accept me for who I am. Yeah, no shit, man. If you have kids and are lucky enough to have them fucking love you at all, just be happy about that. Whether they want to come with someone with the same equipment they have or different equipment, what does it really fucking matter? I just hope that they're healthy and happy. Uh, The body of 32-year-old Clay Boatman was found just two days later, August 14th, 1990, by children playing in Sugar Run Creek near Eaton, Ohio. Clay had been strangled manually. Clay's car was found abandoned in Our Place, uh, the parking lot of Our Place, a popular gay bar in Indianapolis that, uh, you know, Herb would go to a lot. Clay was described as an LPN who had a drinking problem, one source. He was fascinated by the 1986 case of a local teenage sex worker who was the victim of a serial killer and told his friends that if that happened to him, he would not want to leave anything distasteful behind for his mother to find. His mom died the year before he did. Clay's family knew he was gay and accepted it, quote, as best they could. Oh, this 90s time. Uh, Clay appeared laid back and calm, but it was an anxious person. He was caring and compassionate, wanted to be in a lasting relationship. Clay was a nurse and worked at an Indianapolis nursing home. When Clay's mom died. He got serious about dealing with his drug and alcohol abuse, wanted to go back to school, become a registered nurse. But it seems like uh, uh, Herb robbed him of that opportunity. September 12th, 1990, 19-year-old Thomas Clevenger's body is now found on an abandoned railroad bed near Greenville in Dark County, Ohio. Thomas strongly suspected to have been a sex worker, last seen in downtown Indianapolis. Article about him said that Thomas grew up in a lower class area of Indianapolis and had severe behavioral problems. That when he was with a freshman in high school, he pulled a knife on his vice principal, said that Thomas' sister Paula was hit by a car when he was just six years old. Thomas saw it happen and his mom suspected he blamed himself for it. Towards the end of his life, he was trying to change. He started attending AA meetings, asked his girlfriend to teach him how to read, wanted to go back to high school and get a job. But, you know, Herb fucked that up. Uh, February of 1991, for reasons kept private, Herb moves out and files for divorce. But then he and Julie managed to reconcile their marriage. Oh, lucky Julie. Wonder what the problem was. Wonder if Julie was upset because she kept finding dust in her panties from her pussy never getting any action. Or maybe she had the audacity to demand that Herb fuck her for a seventh time. And he was like, absolutely not. Uh, October 7th, 1991, the body of the last I-70 Strangler victim is found. 42-year-old Gary, or excuse me, 42-year-old Otto Gary Becker's remains. 
and were found in a ditch next to a gravel road in Henry County, Indiana. Just a few weeks later, November of 1991, Herb and the family moved to Westfield, Indiana onto that 18-acre property called Fox Hollow Farms. And now going forward, bodies will not keep turning up that will later be attributed to Herb Baumeister. Instead, they'll go missing. And then later, they'll be found on the now reportedly very haunted Fox Hollow. Sometimes it's called Farm. Sometimes sources call it Farms. Uh, Fox Hollow Farm uh, was worth a million dollars back in 1996. And it seems like they uh, made enough money to buy it with fucking thrift store cash. That's impressive. According to the New York Times, the Westfield area was considered so safe that children could leave their bicycles unlocked even outside the county jailhouse. That's a funny detail about the jailhouse. Actually, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, you know, or, or excuse me, would that many people just leaving jail, just a jail anywhere, immediately steal a bike in front of the jail and all of its security cameras? I don't feel like that makes one area more safe than another. That's, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Fox Hollow Farm is a former horse farm, the main house, an 11,000 square foot Tudor mini mansion. 11,000 square feet. It's fucking huge. So it was 18 acres. It wasn't quite that big when Herb lived there. It wasn't the square footage, but it was, it was still very, very large. It's been remodeled a few times since. Fox Hollow Farm had at the time uh, where Herb lived there, four bedrooms, indoor pool, two libraries, five car garage, and custom features like stained glass windows. Uh, Fox Hollow Farm was not the fresh start that I guess Julie and Herb were hoping for. They grew more distant. What little sex they'd once had, and so little. That was all over now. At some point living here, they began to sleep in different rooms. They now own a business together and manage raising kids together, and that's about it. Each summer while living there, Julie will leave town for a vacation. She'll take the kids to a condo owned by uh, Herb's mom, Elizabeth, on Lake Wawasi. Uh, or Wawasi. I have a pronunciation guide for that later. So don't hold me to that pronunciation, but I'll get it right here in a bit when it comes up again. I do remember that. Uh, she might have, uh, uh, you know, be gone, you know, for more than a month, sometimes like two months plus at a time and Herb would stay home. While she's away, he'll work, save a lot during the day. And then at night, he'll go to different gay bars around Indianapolis under an alias of Dick Herb. I wish. Sounds like some kind of seasoning. It tastes like Dick. Hey man, put a little of this on your, uh, on your chicken. Try it out. Dick Herb? What does it taste like? <laughs> well, it tastes like a crusty old dick, you silly goose. Uh, no, his alias was Brian Smart. Uh, 1992, thrift store royalty, uh, Herb and Julie opened their second Save-A-Lot store. One former employee notices that by the summer of 1993, Herb starts disappearing for longer periods of time on a regular basis. It's also often difficult to reach him by mobile phone. He'll say his battery is low. When he's not selling vintage concert tees and bell bottoms, he's busy picking up poor guys downtown, taking them back to Fox Hollow Farm and doing God knows what to them. On August 9th, 1992, Herb's brother Richard is found dead, floating in a hot tub in an apartment complex in Texas. His cause of death is uh, ruled as accidental drowning. Uh, years later, investigators, investigators will wonder if Herb killed him. Credit card receipts and other travel records do put him in the area when his brother died. Did he tell Richard something he shouldn't have? Right? Did Richard find out something and try to hold it over his brother? Or was it just an accident? Seems suspicious. On May 28th, 1993, 20-year-old Johnny L. Bayer is reported missing. His body will turn up on Fox Hollow Farm. Uh, two months later, July 1993, two men are reported missing. 31-year-old Jeffrey Jones and 20-year-old Richard Hamilton. Another dick! This fucking can't throw a rock in this suck without hitting the dick. Uh, Jeffrey Allen Jones went missing on July 6, 1993. He was last seen walking out of a Salvation Army rehab center. Uh, Richard D. Hamilton. I, I would love it if his middle name is Dick. Richard Dick Hamilton uh, went missing on July 31st, 1993. Richard Hamilton was last seen getting, uh, leaving his apartment uh, at 2 a.m. to go get some cigarettes. Both of their remains will turn up in Westfield. 
On August 6, 1993, 27-year-old Alan Lee Livingston, last seen getting into a white vehicle in downtown Indy, never seen again. While suspected of being one of Herb's victims, his remains yet to be found. Also on August 6, 1993, 31-year-old Manuel M. Resendez went missing in Indiana. Man, uh, or Manuel, excuse me, Manuel Resendez went to a nightclub uh, when it was time to leave. His friends couldn't find him. Some of his bones will later be found on Fox Hollow Farm. And uh, 1994, according to one source that does not list the exact date, Herb is arrested for drinking and driving in Rochester, Indiana, sentenced to three days and one year's worth of probation. Wonder if he had someone in the passenger seat who would have died had he not been pulled over that time. On April 1st, 1994, 26-year-old Stephen Hale reported missing. By the way, this is not a complete list. So many people went missing. These are the most kind of... Uh, these are, these are the example, uh, the, the people who are most definitively, excuse me, tied to Herb. Uh, Stevens remains also later found on Herb's farm. June 6, 1994, 28-year-old Alan Wayne Broussard, last seen leaving an Indianapolis gay bar, yet another man whose remains will turn up on the old horse farm in Westfield. Later in June of 1994, Alan Broussard's mother approaches private investigator Virgil Allin Vandegrift for help. Glad Virgil's back. Once Virgil takes his case, he is, of course, all fucking in. Uh, Van Griff initially assumed that, like many cases, Alan was a runaway. Let's get to know a bit more about our old buddy Virgil. Uh, he was once a sheriff, the, the sheriff of Marion County, started a PI firm in Indianapolis in 1982, working part-time until his retirement in 1989. Then he went uh, full-time into PI work. A lot of people would come to Van Griff with missing persons cases because of how they were handled by the city. For a person to be considered missing in Indianapolis, they had to be missing for 24 hours. And then the case would go to a detective. If the detective could not find them in 30 days, then their case would go to the missing persons bureau where it would take God knows how long for any actual investigating to be done there. People came to Vandegrift because, you know, they didn't want to deal with all that half in bullshit. Alan was described as a heavy drinker. Uh, He was uh, gay, last seen leaving Brothers, uh, another downtown indie gay bar. Vandegrift quickly put posters up throughout the city, especially downtown. And in doing so, Vandegrift soon learned that Alan, far from the only missing gay man in the city. On July 22nd, 1994, another local gay man, 34-year-old Roger Allen Goodlett, goes missing from downtown, downtown Indy. Another man whose remains would end up on the farm. Roger's mother, Catherine Araujo, said that they'd spent the day together. Roger helped uh, her build a bench. They talked and played with Roger's new cat. That evening, Roger got dressed, left to go get the bus. This was the last time she saw him. Roger's friend, Rick Rigney, weird name, said that a friend saw Roger get into a car. He was hitchhiking downtown. Catherine reported him missing on the 23rd, but the department had to wait. Speaking of weird names real quick, just today when I was uh, getting lunch, the waitress looked at my uh, credit card and was like, Daniel B. Cummins? She's like, is that actually your name? And I was like, yep. And she's like, well, that's a funny name. Uh, <laughs> so I get it too. Uh, Catherine Araujo reported Roger missing on July 8th or July 28th, 1994. According to Roger's mother, the poor dude had brain damage and was more like a 15 year old rather than a man in his thirties. Roger's family believed he had autism. His mother said Roger was a special soul. He loved the movie Poseidon Adventure. He had it completely memorized, obsessively watching it over and over. He knew all the parts and could recite any of the characters. Not medically diagnosed, but the family feels he was autistic, high functioning. This would explain a lot about his quirky, but lovable personality. Roger could recite joke after joke, and he and I had contests to see who could tell the most, and I miss his happy face. Roger graduated from Cardinal Rittner High. In 1978, then attended uh, Vincennes University and the Pontiac Business Institute. He was a member of a local Lutheran church. Sources do not say when the brain damage came into play. Roger's remains were eventually identified on September 9th, 1996. Time of, uh, time of death and cause of death unknown. 
Uh, Roger's mother also came to Vandegrift because she didn't want to wait, you know, the 30 days. Vandegrift said that listening to her story felt like a repeat of the sessions he had had with Alan Brossard's mother, the fates of these men, too close to ignore, he said. Vandegrift and another local investigator, Bill Hisley, now went to different gay bars in the city to see what else they could find out, but the owners and customers seemed reluctant to talk to them. They did manage to learn that Roger Goodlett had left a bar called Our Place with a man in a light blue car and an Ohio license plate. That plate, uh, the state it comes from, interesting detail that'll show up again later in a bit. Vandegrift told the police what he knew, but said they seemed disinterested. In August of 1994, Vandegrift is now approached by a man named Tony Harris. Oh, Tony, what a character. Tony knew Roger Goodlett, and he tried to tell the police and the FBI what happened, but no one seemed to believe him. Over several visits, Tony will give his story to Vandegrift, and this will go a long ways to catching Herb. Tony believed that a man named Brian Smart had killed Roger Goodlett. Yep, that alias that Herb went by. Uh, Tony said that he went to Brian Smart's home, and they both engaged in some erotic asphyxiation. Uh, this makes zero fucking sense to me, but according to one source in magazine, in magazine.ca, Tony said that Brian talked about how he had killed people and didn't think he would be caught because he'd been getting away with it for years. Said his victims were mostly men who frequented local gay bars in the 80s and 90s, and that some of them had a high-risk lifestyle. What the fuck? I question this because Tony still fucks around with this guy after he supposedly hears this, and they still have uh, you know, erotic asphyxiation. He still lets this dude choke him during sex. I mean, some people like to live dangerously, but goddamn, why would A, Herb tell him this and then not kill him, and B, why would he still fuck this guy after hearing this? I don't know. I guess the answer to A could be because Herb was fucking crazy, and the answer to B could be because Tony is also fucking crazy. This is so wild if true. Can you imagine going on a date with some dude, or or just going to fuck him, right? The 1990s equivalent uh, of a Tinder hookup, and then they start talking about having murdered people. How does that even come up when you're just hanging out with somebody you're trying to hook up with? Can I get you something to drink? Uh, sure. Do you have uh, some Tangeray? I'd love a G&T. Oh, damn. You know what? Some guy I had over last week drank all my tonic right before I killed him. You okay with soda or orange juice? Uh, sure. Um, yeah. No, orange juice is fine. Hey, what did you say right before the orange juice option? I don't remember. Uh, you want to go hop in the pool? Oh, yeah, that sounds great. Oh, the water is so nice and clean. I just had a drain and refilled a few weeks ago after killing this guy in the pool. You need some shorts or are you okay with skinny dipping? Uh, no, uh, skinny, skinny dipping is uh, great. Hey, what did you say just a bit before that though? Uh, Tony had met Brian at the 501 Club, another gay bar in Indianapolis. Uh, he'd seen the man before, but they had not spoken with each other. Tony noticed that the guy was looking at Roger's missing persons poster. And Tony said, quote, I just had a feeling by the way he was captivated by that poster that he was the man who killed my friend Roger. Something in his eyes. Okay, then why would the fuck would you go go to his place to hook up later then? Tony's crazy. Tony said he introduced himself to the man after having this feeling, who said he was Brian Smart, a landscape artist from Ohio who lived in a house outside of town. He was prepping for the new owners. He invited Tony over to his house to ponder uh, over what human piss tasted like or for a cocktail and a swim. Brian's car had an Ohio license plate. This is so strange to me also. Why was Herb driving a car with an Ohio license plate? Did he have an entirely different identity his wife and kids didn't know about, including an Ohio address? Later records will show he did travel to Ohio a lot, but nothing's ever said about him actually having an address there. Again, I feel like Herb had so many secrets. Anyway, these two guys leave the city, travel to the suburbs, into the wealthy area of Westfield. They finally come to a sign atop a landscape, stone embankment, where Tony could read the word farm. 
They walk into Brian's unlit mansion through the garage. Brian leads Tony to a stairwell, said he had electricity in the basement. There was a large rec room downstairs connected to an indoor pool, which does match Herb's actual house at the time. Tony notices it it is very cluttered and that also (laughs) there are a lot of mannequins around the room. Fucking mannequins? Uh, Brian told him, I get lonely down here and they give me company. That is like something that an over-the-top caricature of a serial killer says in a movie. Don't mind my friends. They just keep me company. Hey, can I tell you you a secret? Sometimes I hear them talk to me. (laughs) Let's go fuck in the pool. Fuck me. Let's go fuck me in the pool. In front of of my mannequins. Uh, Tony refused to accept a drink from Brian, which he noticed seemed to upset him. Guessing that drink was loaded with roofies. Uh, Brian excuses himself, and when he comes back, he uh, seems looser, less timid, gabbier. Tony suspects that Brian had done some drugs while he was gone. Uh, These two men now take off, you know, their clothes and begin swimming around the pool in front of the fucking mannequins, talking for a while, and then Brian tells Tony, I just learned this really neat trick. And he picks up a hose and says, if you choke someone with it while you're having sex, it feels really great. You get a really great rush. You just want to pinch these two veins, and it's such a great buzz. You should see how someone looks when you're doing it to them. Their lips change color. That's how you can tell it's working. Tony now becomes pretty nervous and scared, he said. Uh, yeah. Especially if earlier in the evening, right, Brian had told Tony he'd been fucking killing people, which I do not think happened, right? I don't think the following would occur if that did happen. But again, who the fuck knows? People are crazy. Brian now asked Tony to wrap those, uh, wrap that hose around his neck. Tony was too afraid. So Brian does it, right? So Tony, you know, like, let's, Tony wrap the hose around Brian's neck and then Brian masturbates while Tony chokes him. Weinstein and Wilson would write in their book, the only way to find out how these particular sex games ended, Tony reasoned, was to take it all the way with this guy. Okay. Tony now puts his hands on Brian's neck uh, and uh, lays down Then Brian ties the hose around Tony's throat. Uh, This is absurd. Again, Tony supposedly thinks this guy's a killer, a killer who killed his friend and now he's letting this motherfucker tie a hose around his neck uh, in a pool surrounded by mannequins. If we knew Tony had done this and then Tony died, it would be very hard to feel sorry for him, right? It would feel less like he was the murder victim of a serial killer and more like he had kind of killed himself through some kind of Darwin Award. Tony now says he pretended to go unconscious. And when he did, that Brian eased up on the pressure, then whispered his name, like, Tony, Tony. Tony still didn't open his eyes. So now Brian begins shaking him roughly. When Tony then opens his eyes and smiles, Brian says, you scared the shit out of me. You know, you can die doing this. And then creepily says, there have been accidents tony says he now confronts him is that what happened to roger goodlett was he one of your accidents were there others then brian doesn't answer he just stares at tony seeming not to understand at first but then smiles a creepy smile and then brian's speech started to slur and he fell asleep brian aka aka uh, herb what's he doing here how many men did he just fuck around with and how many did he kill what was the trigger that made him murder some but not others Tony now decides to walk around the house while Brian uh, slash Herb sleeps. He didn't believe Herb's story about this job. He finds children's toys and women's clothing in rooms of the house. Tony comes back downstairs, starts going through Brian's pants for his wallet, wants to look at his ID to get his real name to report him to the police. But then Brian wakes up before Tony can find it. And now Tony convinces Brian to drive him back to town. And Brian supposedly told Tony, hey, you're a good sport. You really know how to play. The fuck is going on here? Now Brian asked Tony to meet him at the 501 club the next week. Tony couldn't uh, tell Vandegrift exactly where Brian lived, but he believed it was either Westfield or Carmel. Also wasn't able to give Vandegrift a detailed description of the house, uh, at least on the outside. It was too dark. 
Van Griff now has one of his employees wait outside the bar on the night Tony is supposed to meet Brian. The employee watches every driver who comes to the bar, but none of them match the description Tony gave. The bar closed and Brian never showed up. Instead of giving up, uh, you know, on what seemed to have maybe been a dead end, fucking all in Vandegrift takes Tony Harris to Detective Mary Wilson of the Indianapolis PD now. Wilson had previously worked in the sex crimes division, now worked in missing persons. Vandegrift felt like Wilson would take Tony seriously. Wilson was a lead investigator on the Jeff Jones missing persons case. She was also looking at 20-year-old Richard Hamilton, 21-year-old Johnny Bayer, 28-year-old Alan Livingstone, and other missing gay men from the early 90s. All the men I named are suspected Baumeister victims. I didn't mention Alan earlier because his remains have still not been found from what I can tell. Tony told Mary uh, what happened with Brian Smart and they drove around the suburbs north of Indianapolis looking for Brian's house, but uh, couldn't find it. Mary, still believing crazy-ass Tony, now sends plainclothes officers to the 501 Club, the Varsity, Our Place, and other gay bars in downtown Indy. She asked Tony to get Brian's plate number if he ever saw him again at one of these bars. Meanwhile, Vandegrift continues looking into other disappearances. He told author Joseph Geringer, my clients had paid me what they could afford to investigate the disappearances of their sons. And even though the Indianapolis police had taken up the case now, I felt like I just couldn't drop it in their laps and walk away. The money I was paid had long been used up on equipment and man's salary, but that didn't matter. When I feel like I'm onto something, well, that's my nature. Hey, I knew we were talking murder here. The existence of what I smelled as a serial killer. All fucking in. Bill Hisley, former state trooper, was sent to the search the, uh, search the suburbs for Vandegrift. Bill ended up at the driveway of Fox Hollow Farms, and the estate matches Tony's description. Nobody's home, so Bill sneaks around a bit, uh, peeks into the window, sees that indoor pool. Later finds out that the property belonged to the Baumeister family. Vandegrift now has aerial photos taken of the property. But when Tony looks at the pictures, he doesn't think it's the right house. Saying that the driveway's too short. Fucking damn it, crazy Tony. Bill must not have seen those mannequins. Maybe Herbert uh, only brought them out for special occasions. In late 1994, Herb's middle child, 13-year-old Eric, finds human bones, including a fucking skull, in the backyard of his house, right? Fox Hollow Farm. Leads his mom, Julie, to a cluster of bones under some fallen leaves. Then Julie asks Herb what the hell is going on. She thought they should call the police, but he talks her out of it. He reassures his family that the bones are just bones from a um, med school cadaver, ones owned by my daddy, but does not explain how they got in his backyard. Jesus Christ. Herb, what are these bones doing here? <laughs> oh, those, those bones? Those um, are uh, bones from my dad's cadavers from med school that he gave them to me and I forgot to mention it. Why are they just piled up under a tree in our yard? Well, let me answer your question with another question. Have you ever wondered what human urine tastes like? Ever pondered that? I bet it's sour, but I still don't know. Come on, it's cold out. Let's go inside and discuss. I also want to show you some more mannequins I just bought. Uh, several days later, Julie notices now that the bones are gone and assumes that an animal has carried them off. She would tell People Magazine in December of 1996, it wasn't like I was sitting at home with nothing else to think about. Uh-huh. Uh, but you were thinking, at least a little bit, about the human fucking skull your hu husband told you belonged to one of his dad's cadavers that he just, uh, I don't know, tossed out in the yard. And then, you know, after showing her the bones, they just magically disappeared. And he didn't want you to talk to the police. And you think animals did that and you didn't pursue the matter further because you didn't have enough time to think more about it. Isn't that what you're saying here? It's pretty hard not to just think sometimes that Julie is a fucking idiot. Uh, by the end of 1994, Save a Lot was not doing well financially. Hard to run a business when you're drinking with the employees at work and killing people all the time. When you should be, you know, I don't know, 
selling secondhand jeans or something. Herb and Julie's marriage is at an all-time low, which is saying a lot. They're fighting, stressed out from financial trouble. Julie uh, threatens to divorce Herb, but doesn't go through with it. Herb now becomes noticeably angrier. He becomes a lot more demanding of his employees, fires those who don't do exactly what he wants. He's still disappearing for hours at a time, but now is coming back more often smelling like alcohol. Save a lot was once known for being very clean and tidy. Now the stores are getting dirtier and dirtier. One employee said everywhere you looked, there were mountains of garbage bags. It was like working in a garbage heap. March 31st, 1995, 46-year-old Michael Frederick Kern goes missing. Mike is reported missing when he doesn't show up for work at a factory. He is Herb's last known victim. His bones also being found later on the farm. Suspected victim, but you know, come on, Herb fucking killed him. Uh, June of 1995, in the midst of all this chaos, the Baumeisters opened a third Save-A-Lot store in Castleton. Also, though, closed their first store on Arlington Avenue. So still down to two. August 8th, 1995, 34-year-old local gay man Jerry Williams Comer, last seen in downtown Indianapolis, never seen again. Jerry's partner, Roy Comer, hadn't heard from him since August 8th. Jerry's car was found at the Castleton Square Mall after his disappearance. Not a known victim. His remains have uh, yet to be found, but many think Herb also killed him, which is why I'm talking about him now. August 29th, 1995, Tony Harris finally sees Brian Smart again at the Varsity Lounge. Ah, fuck yeah. Finds him sitting at the bar between two mannequins talking about some piss. Or sitting by himself having a drink. Uh, He spoke with Brian and got his license plate number when he left. Brian was driving a pickup truck that day. His plate number, 75237A. Authorities will quickly determine is, uh, you know, that is registered to Herbert Richard Baumeister of Fox Hollow Farms, Westfield, Indiana. Finally, the walls are closing in on this prick. After, I don't know, having a whole bunch of meetings over how they're going to, I guess, pursue him or something. Over two months later, on November 1st, 1995, Detective Mary Wilson and Lieutenant Thomas Green speak to her about his Save-A-Lot store at one of them and inform him that he is a suspect in the disappearances of numerous young gay men in Indianapolis. Herb denies ever going to these gay bars. And the detectives tell him, well, his car has been definitively identified as being there. And then Herb becomes visibly upset, says no one in his family knows he goes to these bars. And he now refuses to allow the police to search his property and tells them that he will not speak with them going forward. They can communicate to his lawyer. Detective Wilson now decides to talk to his wife, Julie. She refuses to allow them to search the property. Herb had told her that the police were coming by and to not allow them to search the property. And she uh, did what Herb says because, you know, that's who Julie was. Julie told People Magazine, the police came to me and said, we are investigating your husband in relation to homosexual homicide. I remember saying to them, can you tell me what homosexual homicide is? I picture Julie actually asking questions as dumb as, what's a homosexual? Uh, Julie did then confront Herb about what the police told her, but he dismissed everything and classic Julie, she didn't bring it up again. All right. Herb just told her he was being victimized by a disgruntled thrift store employee and to keep the police off the state. And that is that. Uh, Julie said that she was so preoccupied with her 18 hour days at their two save a lot thrift stores and taking care of the family that she didn't discuss the homicide issue with her husband again. Oh yeah, that's it. Too busy with work. To find time to talk to your spouse about why the police think they're a fucking serial killer. That makes sense. That adds up. Uh, Julie said she had no clue, zero zip, that Herb went to gay bars and had sex with other men. Well, who do you think he was fucking, Julie? He's clearly not knocking your pussy out. Oh, come on. Might, might want to wonder what, he's, uh, what else he's up to that he's not telling you about. Uh, the police soon approached Julie a second time, and again, she is not cooperative. But as the months pass... Julie later said that she started to think about the skull that her son found and started to wonder if maybe the police were right. I love that adding the skull into the equation for her took months. Hey, 
Wait a minute. Some kind of puzzle is starting to come together. Hmm. First, my husband only fucks me six times in 25 years. Then my husband only hires teen boys and young men to work at our stores. And he also spent two months in a mental institution right after we got married and wouldn't talk about what he spoke about there. And he has a lot of mannequins surrounding the pool. And then my son finds a human skeleton in the backyard that Herb said belonged to his dad, but never explained how it got in our yard, and then it just disappeared. And then not long after that, after Herb's been disappearing and not telling me where he's been going for years, the police tell me they think he's gay and a serial killer who kills other gay men. Should I be worried? I think I should be worried. Uh, after this, Herb and Julie's marital problems uh, only get worse now. I would hope so. Uh, but then Julie calls Detective Mary Wilson and blames her for their problems. She shouted at Wilson, The police are not coming to my house, tearing through things, upsetting my children, all in the word of a psycho named Tony Harris, who my husband never even heard of. Click. Mary Wilson wanted a search warrant, but couldn't get a search warrant because she didn't work for Hamilton County, and Hamilton County refused to cooperate with her for reasons not made clear. The following month, mid-December 1995, Herb and Julie separate. Just a few weeks later, on January 4th, uh, 1996, Julie Baumeister files for divorce. Over the serial killing, right? No. In January of 1996, Julie's divorce filing stated, wife believes that husband suffers from serious emotional instability. Yeah, he's fucking mentally ill. And as a result of neglect, the business is in serious financial jeopardy. Both of them had accused each, each other of controlling the family's bank accounts and mismanaging the business. In May of 1996, now the Children's Bureau board terminates their contract with Save-A-Lot, which completely fucking destroys Herb's thrift store business model. Since again, Herb gets all of his thrift clothes from donations to the Children's Bureau. So he has no incoming, uh, you know, uh, inventory now. Herb now, according to sources, goes, quote, off the deep end. By late June 1996, Herb Baumeister is deeply troubled, has to close another one of the Save-A-Lot stores. The police are looking into him for murders he knows he is, uh, has committed, and he is deeply in debt, and he is now divorced. He now takes his son with him to Lake Wawasee, that's how you say it, Indiana's biggest natural lake, totally contained in Indiana. A beautiful lake, actually, where Al Capone used to vacation. And when the boys were out of town getting in some dude time, Julie tells her attorney that she has checked their personal bank accounts and has found out that all of her fucking money is gone. What a terrible life moment. She's 49 years old. And why does she still have bank accounts tied to her after the divorce, by the way? But anyway, she's about to turn 50 years old and her husband, ex-husband, has drained all the money from their accounts. That is maybe my biggest fear with marriage. Not with my wife, Lindsay, specifically, but like just in general, that your partner like could take all of your money. And I know some people separate their finances for this exact reason. I would rather be cheated on than have someone destroy my financial future like that. I mean, for me, that feels like a much deeper betrayal. Like you can choose on some level how upset to get or not to get about being cheated on. You cannot choose to keep living your life as you previously were living it if you suddenly don't have any fucking money or substantially less money, right? I don't think there's too many good reasons to murder your spouse, but them taking all of your money, I'd understand someone killing their spouse in that situation. And I would not feel sorry for the person being killed unless they took the money for, you know, a damn good reason. Uh, on June 23rd, 1996, right after realizing how thoroughly Herb has just fucked over her and the kids, won't fuck her pussy, but will fuck over her life. Uh, Julie Baumeister calls her lawyer, Bill Wendling, and asks him to contact Mary Wilson to now authorize the property search. Smartest thing Julie has done all episode by far. 
well, that may be in divorcing Herb. Uh, before the meeting with Detective Wilson, Wendling told her that Julie's son found bones on the property. The next day, June 24th, 1996, uh, Julie, excuse me, Julie allows the police to search the property while Herb is away at the family condo. Detective Mary Wilson, Captain Tom Anderson of the Sheriff's Office, Detective Jar- Jeff Markham drive to Fox Hollow Farm to conduct their search. Julie and her attorney led the detectives to the backyard, pointed out where her son found the skeleton, said she never reported it because she thought they were cadaver bones that her, you know, um, husband had uh, dumped in the yard uh, like people do for no good reason. Guessing she felt a little embarrassed telling him that. Hoping she did. Uh, Joseph Geringer will later write, the yard at first glance looked normal. But as, the man, but as the men began to kick through low grass and patches of dirt just beyond the back patio, they encountered a bone about a foot long, charred from having been burned. They weren't sure if it was human. Then as their eyes focused on the area immediately around them, it quickly became apparent that those many pebbles and rocks strewn across the flat cover were not pebbles and rocks, but fragments of bone. They continued looking and soon found human teeth. They knew they were standing on a crime scene. The evidence was sent to forensic anthropologist Stephen Naraki at the University of Indiana, and he reported they're human, they're recent, and they've been burned. The police now expand their search. Look over all 18 acres of Fox Hollow Farm while Herb is still away and has no idea. They find another dump area, find more bones, other body parts, covered with leaves in a wooded area only 50 or 60 feet from the house. Hamilton County Sheriff Sergeant Eddie Moore would later say it was mostly bones. All the flesh and whatnot was eaten away. There was little in the way of artifacts, like watches and clothing. They would eventually find the remains of at least 11 people, although for three years, news outlets would report the remains made up seven victims. In total, investigators uh, would find initially over 5,000 human bone fragments. It is now up to over 10,000. Currently, and a new investigation is ongoing, uh, the bones of at least 25 people have been found on this property. Almost as many bodies as uh, were found under John Wayne Gacy's house. First bone found was a wrist. Then investigators found jaw bones, thigh bones, fingers, ribs, uh, vertebrates, uh, you know, vertebrates. I don't know why it's written as vertebrates in, in the source, but uh, one, one officer found a whole foot. The bones were initially found in two sites in the woods near the house. The flesh had been either burned off or removed by animals in the elements, and there were no obvious bullet holes. The remains of uh, eight men would eventually be positively identified all over a three-year period starting with that first property search. 20-year-old Johnny Lee Bear, 20-year-old Richard Douglas Hamilton. So it's Douglas, not Dick. Uh, 26-year-old Stephen S. Hale. 28-year-old Alan Wayne Broussard. 31-year-old Jeffrey A. Jones. 31-year-old Manuel Resendez. 33-year-old Roger Allen Goodlett. And 46-year-old Michael Frederick Kiern. May they rest in peace. The rest of the remains uh, still waiting for DNA matches. I'll talk about it at the very end of the episode. Uh, all of the men whose remains were identified went to the same gay bars as her Baumeister and all went missing on days when Julie and the kids were not home. Investigators immediately suspected foul play because no personal items or weapons were found with the bones. This indicated that the person who might have killed these people did not want them to be identified. On June 25th, the police came back to search the property again for the third day in a row. Detectives, prosecutors, Sonia Learcamp, uh, Stephen Araki also come to Fox Hollow Farm on the 25th uh, as well to examine the remains. Just a half an hour, Naraki and his assistants placed almost 100 markers where they found additional bone fragments. They found compost piles full of burned bones. Officers also searched the inside of the house and found a semi-hidden video camera. They suspected her probably used to record the murders, but they didn't find any tapes. Also on June 25th, Julie was granted an immediate emergency protective order to keep Herb away from the kids. But Julie is afraid because her son is still with Herb, uh, Herb, excuse me, at uh, Lake Wawasee. 
She worried that he would, uh, you know, what he would do if he learned what was happening. Without alerting him to the fact that he was being looked at as a possible serial killer, police officers are sent to the condo where Herb was staying to collect his son. Herb figured that Julie was trying to take him as part of the divorce and released his son to local police officers without a fight. And before officers came back to arrest him, again, I'm not entirely sure why they didn't just arrest him after getting him to hand over his son. Uh, he'll vanish. I think it's probably because they they couldn't find uh, like bullet casings. They didn't know how the remains, like like the, the remains they found on the property, they just couldn't conclusively prove initially that those people were murdered. And they, 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 I think they wanted a bit more evidence before confronting Herb uh, for their initial interrogation. Uh, still on June 25th, investigators interviewed crazy-ass Tony Harris about Herb's asphyxiation fetish. Police have also been interviewing Julie. Their main goal is to figure out how Herb could have kept all of the secret from her. She said that she sometimes went to visit Herb's mother for up to several months at a time while Herb stayed at home. And again, like what a sad, pathetic excuse for a marriage they had. It's just so crazy to me. Uh, meanwhile, more and more bones, right, continue to be found. Neighbors come over to report more bones in a drainage ditch cutting across the property. Investigators searching this uh, ditch find ribs, more vertebrae, spines, and also a bunch of cans of Miller Genuine Draft, uh, which was Herb's favorite beer, as well as some handcuffs. Uh, the bones found in the ditch were much more intact than the ones found near the house. Dude was just knocking back some Millers. Well, I did a little killing and maybe burned a few bodies. Real dark version of fucking Miller time. By the end of searching, just over the first few days, it was estimated that they'd, yeah, found the remains of roughly 11 men. On June 28th, 1996, Dick Meister makes it to Fenville, Michigan. He learned about an arrest warrant now out for him and was on the run. On June 29th, he reaches Port Huron. He also called his brother Brad, asked for some money. Later that same day, he arrived in Sarnia, or Ontario, spent a few days there, and then drove on to Grand Bend, Ontario. So he's hiding out in Canada. Uh, after Herb called him, his bro, Brad Baumeister, called Sergeant Ken Wisman and said that Herb was in Fenville, Michigan. Said Herb had told him that he was on a business trip and just needed some money. And then after Brad sent it to him, he learned about what was happening at Fox Hollow Farm. A few days later, on the night of July 2nd, a Canadian trooper stops Herb and asks uh, what he's doing sleeping under a bridge. Says he's just a tourist and is just resting. Uh, the trooper will see luggage and notice a, quote, big pile of videotapes in his back seat. Virgil, all fucking in Vandegrift, later wonders, were those videotapes of the murders he committed in the pool at Fox Hollow Farms? We will never know, for after he died there, there were no signs of the tapes on him nor in his car. He must have tossed them in a lake before he shot himself. Perhaps it's for the best. Actually, truly, those tapes would have probably sent a lot of people into therapy after watching them. Herb strangling guy after guy in the pool, doing God knows what else to them. Also on July 2nd, more bones, more handcuffs, more teeth found on the property. Previously, investigators also found remnants of 12-gauge shotgun shells, uh, but couldn't tie them to any of the remains. July 3rd, 1996, 49-year-old Herb Baumeister now shoots himself in the head with a 357 Magnum in Pinery Provincial Park, Grand Bend, Ontario. He wrote a three-page suicide note where he said he killed himself because of his failed marriage and failed business. He apologized for spoiling the scenery of the park, apologized for ending his marriage, apologized about the financial troubles of the business, but did not apologize or even reference any of the murders. What a fucking coward. So odd to me. Dude, you're fucking dead now. What is the point of still trying to hide what you did? It's, it's like he was too ashamed to put down uh, on paper and actually face who he actually was, even at the very end. Too hard to face himself, even moments before he was going to take his own life. Uh, Herb also wrote a bunch of, uh, quote, mundane details in a suicide note, random details about his trip from Indiana, shit like wondering if he had enough gas to travel. Wrote about a bridge he crossed over from Port Huron to uh, Sarnia, Ontario, talking about how high the bridge was, how he was afraid of heights. 
mentioned how he was going to kill himself earlier near the Blue Water Bridge by Sarnia, but there were some children nearby, so he drove on. How kind of him, right? Don't need to upset the children. Uh, Most random to me, he wrote about how he would just eat a peanut butter sandwich and then go to sleep. (laughs) What a sad fucking final meal. A peanut butter sandwich? Uh, Anywho, think it's about time for me to wrap this letter. Uh, Getting pretty hungry. I'm going to eat a nice peanut butter sandwich. No jelly. Don't want the extra carbs. Uh, Really looking forward to having a nice lean corpse for the funeral. Also, hoping I don't shit myself. I blow my brains out. I'm guessing the peanut butter might help kind of, you know, keep me together, right? I mean, I mean, eating some spicy enchiladas or something. I mean, that for sure is coming back out. But peanut butter? That should stick inside, I'm thinking. Oh, I'm probably going to wash it down with some of my own piss. Uh, still been pondering what it tastes like. And if I don't drink it now, I'm never going to know. Take care of the mannequins for me. Herbert, out. Uh, Speck told the star that the suicide note was inside an envelope that read, Attention, Canadian authorities. How proper. According to Ontario Provincial Police Detective George Speck, Herb got to Sarnia, Ontario, about an hour from Detroit on June 30th, spent several days living out of his car there, uh, drove along the Lake Huron Huron shoreline to Grand Bend, Ontario, uh, paid $7 for a day pass to the Pinery Provincial Park, killed himself on the evening of July 3rd after loading up his gun with just one bullet. And his remains were found by campers near a beach parking area. His vehicle was found next to him. Herb's family learns about his death early on July 4th. 1996, what a fun Independence Day message for the kids. Hey kids, your dad was a vicious serial killer who fucked and buried over a dozen men where you've been playing in the yard. Ha <laughs> no more though. Don't worry about it. You just blew his brains out in Canada. Hey, don't be sad. It's 4th of July. Woo! Here's some sparklers and bottle rockets. We're having a big fireworks show tonight. Come on down to the park and grab some hot dogs. Uh, his children were just 16, 15, and 11 years old at this time. Man, that fucking sucks. How devastating. All three kids... Yeah, devastated, obviously, by their father's suicide and by how he was portrayed then in the media. Julie later told People Magazine, nothing can take away the love these kids had for their dad. Eh, I wonder. I wonder what these kids would say now. I am guessing, now that there's been years for it to sink in, they're not their dad's biggest fans and might not think about him in loving terms. Uh, Julie and the kids now move back to her and to move back into her and Herbs, Herbs, Jesus Christ, first house in Indianapolis, uh, which the couple had never sold. Herb's divorce attorney, Frank Miroff, said that at the time, uh, Herb might have killed himself because of the divorce and financial problems, but he would be surprised if Herb had anything to do with the bones, saying, I just don't see him that way. He admitted that he'd only met with Herb a few times and didn't know him very well, but he thought of Herb as weak and unable to take charge. Not the kind of person who'd be capable of murder. And those are the ones that fucking get you. The ones you least, uh, least suspect. Uh, late August, 1996. Herb and Julie's family business, Thrift Management, now files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They listed their liabilities as one point, uh, or $1,089,000 and their assets as only $156,000. So way to go, Herbert. Take all that money out of uh, the personal accounts. Where did that go? Uh, you fucking kill yourself and you leave your wife with almost a million dollars worth of business debt. I doubt that Julie would think of Herb lovingly after all this. On November 25th, 1996, the Indianapolis Star publishes Julie's first public interview since Herb's death. Like everyone else, Julie was left with more questions than answers. She said she still cared about Herb and missed him. Eh. But she wanted to know how all those bones ended up behind their house. How the fuck do you think they did? Because he killed those guys, Julie. Come on, wake up. She also wished that uh, Herb had explained more in his suicide note. The Star wrote, what frustrates Baumeister is that she feels the public has tried and convicted her husband in the deaths. Julie wanted the murder solved, even if it implicates her, because truth is right. But nobody knows that he did it. Get the fuck. He's fucking guilty, Julie. Come on. What do you think happened? Some other random dude just kept bringing bodies back to your house when you were out of town, burning them, dumping them, 
next to the house without Herb noticing. And then this other person only did this when you were out of town and only brought men back who had been seen at fucking bars with Herbert. The power of denial. So strong in Julie. Uh, Julie admitted that there were a lot of things she didn't know about Herb. You know, like his, how his fucking dick felt. Uh, no, she didn't know uh, why he never graduated college, why he picked anatomy at IU, and why he never discussed his time in the psychiatric hospital with her. Julie also said that Herb and the men, uh, oh, sorry. Julie also said that if Herb and the men used the indoor swimming pool water or indoor swimming pool, water would have splashed onto a nearby window, but Herb never would have thought to clean the splash marks and she never saw them. She also never saw an ashtray, cups, trash, or spill marks on the carpet, which led her to believe that, you know, he didn't, he didn't do it. Jules, wake the fuck up. He might've uh, clean, not cleaned up around the house, you know, to be nice to you, but uh, he had a bit more incentive to clean up after the murders. Also, the mannequins, Jules. Come on. I didn't weird you out just a little bit. Uh, Julie said, there's no book to get at the library on how to deal with this. Do I feel sorry for myself? Yes. I didn't deserve this. My kids didn't deserve this. And the people who died didn't deserve this. All right. Well, that's, that's actually very true. That's actually a good quote, Jules. Uh, around this time, P.I. Virgil motherfucking all in Vandegrift shares crazy Tony Harris's story with David Lindoff. Lindloff, excuse me, lead investigator on the I-70 Stranglers murder cases. Uh, they figure out that the last I-70 victim died right before the Indianapolis men started to go missing, right before Herb bought those 18 acres. Uh, Lindloff now learns that Herb made countless trips to Ohio in the late 80s. Julie told uh, him that Herb went on hundreds of business trips from Indianapolis to Ohio and that he traveled on I-70. Julie cooperated with Lindloff, gave him credit card receipts, phone records in their car. Baumeister's picture also matched a police sketch created from testimony from eyewitnesses who allegedly saw the I-70 strangler. Vandegrift also was the one to implicate Herb in his brother's death. And he said uh, there, Herb has an older brother who lives in Texas. Now, I don't know if Herb had visited him at the time or not, but, and this is real strange, that particular Baumeister was found dead in a whirlpool. The case was never solved, but this incident occurred around the same time Herb was strangling people in his pool. I ask you, does that ring too close to home or doesn't it? It does ring too close to home. Virgil, it does. Uh, April 28th, 1998, investigators in Indiana and Ohio announced that Herb Baumeister has been linked to the deaths of nine men, men whose remains were not found on his property. Between 1980 and 1990, these nine men were strangled and dumped in streams and culverts never far from I-70. Uh, investigators now announced that Herb may have also killed at least seven more men whose remains have been found on his property. Sheriff James Bradbury said that the cases were considered closed. And if somebody has any information, we don't care who it is. We'd be happy to look at it. But Herb Baumeister is the only suspect we have in any of them. Authorities suspected that after Herb moved to Westfield, he started dumping bodies on his farm because now he had the space to do so. Another suspect of the I-70 murders was Larry Eiler, an Indiana serial killer who may have known Herb or possibly even killed with him on occasion. Larry was five years younger than Herbert. After getting into arguments with his boyfriend, he would drive around looking for new victims. He eventually confessed to murdering 21 men in Illinois and Indiana. He had been apprehended back in August of 1984, sentenced to death in October of 1986. Eiler's murder spree lasted roughly two years, and he killed his victims with a knife instead of strangulation. And some of the victims of the I-70 strangler that I did not mention because they were not associated with her were stabbed. And then Eiler would die of AIDS in March of 1994. On March 8th, 1994, Eiler's attorney, Kathleen Zellner, released a list of 21 men and boys Eiler confessed to murdering. Marla Stevens, public policy director of the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgendered Fairness, an LGBT civil rights and advocacy group, told the Indianapolis Star, there's some speculation that Baumeister was mimicking Eiler or was his accomplice. Eiler did claim that he had an accomplice in four of the murders. 
and Eiler was known to frequent our place, same gay bar where Herb was a regular and where he had met many of his victims. Man, that was a dangerous-ass bar to be a regular at back then. At least two serial killers frequented it uh, for a while. Uh, to date now, going to the present, authorities have found the remains of, again, at least 25 people on Baumeister's property. There's no exact number because of the state of the remains, uh, burned and scattered. In addition to those 25-plus people, officials uh, won't publicly definitively attribute to her Baumeister because the state of the remains doesn't allow for the possibility to determine a cause of death. Investigators also believe Baumeister was responsible for the deaths of at least nine more men and teenage boys, as I said, whose bodies were left in shallow streams, ditches, etc., Across Indiana and Ohio between 1980 and 1990, the I-70 strangulations. And as I mentioned, the property being investigated again right now because recently more remains were unearthed by the current owners. Very likely that Herb killed at least 34 boys and men, one more than John Wayne Gacy's suspected body count of at least 33. Now let's get out of here and move on to the paranormal aspect of today's episode. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Okay, before I get into the paranormal part of the episode, which I've been greatly looking forward to, uh, first, just another quick ad break. Coming this holiday season, from director Michael Bay and New Line Cinema, the greatest action blockbuster in the history of not just holiday movies, but all film. Opening in theaters on Christmas Day, Killer Christ, starring Nicolas Cage as the most bloodthirsty savior the world has ever known. All right, everybody, turn the other cheek time is over. You're bowing down, or I'm chopping you straight to hell. Also starring Keanu Reeves as Satan. Whoa, like, dude, what are you doing, Jesus? I, like, never seen you so, like, angry and stuff. Just chill, bro. Whoa. With Samuel L. Jackson playing God. These motherfuckers have to die! Grandparents, children, if they ain't Christian, son, you're gonna lop their motherfucking heads off! It's the end times, and the spirit of forgiveness is over. You will repent, you will convert, or you will die. Water into wine, try water into napalm. I'm starving today. And the only thing I want to eat is the blood of infidels. If you care about your soul this Christmas, don't miss Killer Christ. Even if you don't watch it, Killer Christ is watching you. It's the eighth day, motherfucker! I'm all rested up! And you motherfuckers are gonna die! Wow, that fucking movie sounds great. Uh, (laughs) If you want to know where the hell... That came from. Uh, check out last week's episode. <laughs> and that was the best That was the best impressions I can do. Uh, now let's talk about the possibility. That the ghosts of... That was very fun for me, if it wasn't for anybody else. Uh, now let's talk about the possibility that the ghosts of Herb and some of his victims now haunt Fox Hollow Farm. Now can I prove that this supposed haunting is anything more than the overactive imaginations of people making these claims? I cannot. But a lot of paranormal enthusiasts believe this place to be very haunted. Uh, for you bad magicians that also listen to Scared to Death... The following details are from episode 129 of Scared to Death, Just Beyond. For those of you who don't already listen to my other podcasts, the one I co-host, my wife, Lindsay, this is just a good example of the kinds of stories that we tell there, but with spooky sound beds beneath them. Uh, A big part of my motivation to launch Scared to Death was to be able to tell stories like the following one without feeling the need to be overly critical. Uh, 
right? Without feeling like I need to punch them up, try and find some humor, sometimes as critical as I can be with the stories here, which I like. I also love some good old-fashioned escapism to suspend disbelief and just wonder, what if? Uh, I like to think in today's case, what if this place actually is fucking haunted? What if all the horrible crimes, evidence or not, confession or not, that Herb for sure committed left some sort of paranormal impression of sorts that remains there to this day? You know, like what if we do have souls? What if those souls can become ghosts? And what if ghosts can become trapped reliving their final terrible moments what if the ghost of a killer can continue to try and create more pain and misery and even death from beyond the grave? Probably should have told this story uh, back in October. Oh, well, I'm telling it now. Uh, as, as soon as I told this following story back in February and scared to death, I wanted to dig into the same story of uh, for time suck, but, you know, go further into Herb's crimes and just finally got around to doing that. Uh, so now this, picks, this part picks up not long after Herb's story ends, just three years later. So May of, of 2009. Almost exactly three years after Herb's crimes are exposed, after Herb you know, kills himself and Julie and the kids move off the property, uh, Robert and Vicki Graves purchase Fox Hollow Farms. The house was originally listed at $2.8 million, but they would pay only $987,000. Some of that price drop can be attributed to the real estate crash of 2008, but not all of it. That's a massive drop. Almost a third of the asking price. The property's dark history, I think, had a lot to do with it not selling for anywhere near its original asking price. Uh, the house had been remodeled quite a bit since the days of the Baumeisters, but still had that infamous indoor pool. Does not sound like the mannequins came with the sale. Uh, the graves, and what a perfect last name for a couple buying a property that was also a burial ground, were excited to move into the house that they thought would be the perfect home for themselves and their two young boys for many, many years to come. They were not worried about the history of the home affecting their present but they soon would be. There weren't any initial signs that anything supernatural was lurking in the house for the first few months. Well, not, not really. There was one supposed strange incident. One day while Vicky was vacuuming halfway through the clean, uh, cleaning the hallway, she said the vacuum stopped working. Vicky spun around, saw the plug had fallen out of the outlet, right? Shrugged it off, not a big deal. Convinced herself she must just pull the cord too hard. Uh, happens all the time. I do it myself quite a bit. Uh, but then while she vacuumed this one hallway, it just kept happening over and over and over. Hardly a terrifying sign of the paranormal, though. Just something that gave her pause. Maybe weirded her out a bit. But then when nothing else happened in the, in the next few weeks, you know, Vicky forgot all about it and didn't think about it again until a man named Joe LeBlanc moved in. Now, Joe was a friend of her husband, Roberts, who found himself in need of a place to stay, and he unknowingly moved into what was once Herb Baumeister's living quarters, now an apartment above the garage. And that was a detail that didn't come out until, you know, after Herb's death that for, you know, a chunk of time when he and Julie, Julie lived at Fox Hollow Farms, you know, they had separate bedrooms. I mentioned it briefly. Uh, not surprising after what we learned about their sham of a marriage. Joe, Joe's moving in seems to have awakened something, seemed to have triggered maybe some resident ghosts into making their presence undeniably known. The very first night Joe stayed in Herb's old room, he had a terrible nightmare. When he woke up, he couldn't remember what or who but he knew something evil had been chasing him through the woods just past the house. The dream was so vivid that Joe's adrenaline surged as soon as he woke up so much, he literally leapt out of bed, still running, and actually ran into the door, hitting his head against it. That is some fucking dream. Then later that same day, Robert was on a ladder painting in the house when he heard his wife now urgently shouting for his attention. Robert, there's someone here. Someone's in the woods. Robert climbed down initially, not alarmed. He was already getting used to trespassers, right? On their new property so far, it had just been thrill seekers, you know, kids mostly looking for places where bodies have been buried. Robert did worry though, that one of these times a trespasser would be someone who might try to break into the house. And due to that concern, he kept the shotgun near the front door. 
By the time he retrieved this weapon, Vicky's face was white as a sheet. She stood frozen to the spot where she'd seen the trespassers still staring out the window. And she told Robert that there wasn't an intruder after all. Not exactly. Not a living one. Vicky said that she saw what looked like a young man in a red shirt running through the woods, terrified of whatever or whoever was chasing him. And then as he passed by a tree, Vicky saw that he impossibly had no legs. And then a second later, just poof, vanished into thin air. Uh, imagine actually witnessing something like that while sober, while not suffering from some mental illness that includes hallucinations. I've never had an experience like that. I go back and forth when it comes to wanting to have an experience like that or not. Uh, the very next day, Joe LeBlanc now learns that the nightmare he had was not a scary one-off. It would be an intro to greater horrors. He started experiencing a new nightly occurrence that will prevent him from getting a good night's sleep, he'll say, for months. He said that night after night, supposedly exactly at 3 a.m., uh, Joe will be awakened by a loud knocking at the door of his apartment. First time it happened, he said that Fred, his usually very relaxed and friendly dog, was baring his teeth and growling at the door. I imagine Bojangles will not stay calm for that shit either. God, I know that my dogs, Penny Pooper and Ginger Bell, Penny and Dee Dee, uh, would freak the fuck out. Fred clearly did not like whoever or whatever was on the other side of the door. This first night, as Joe now sat up in his bed, heart pounding, a knock then came again, but louder this time, Joe quickly went to answer the door, thinking, hoping that maybe Robert or Vicky had lost their keys or needed his help with something. But when he opened the door, there was no one on the other side. No sounds of anyone in the area. But Frank was still growling and agitated, and it took a while for him to calm down. After hearing about this, Robert soon will decide to put security cameras around the house and the grounds, thinking that maybe the family is being tormented by some unidentified trespasser, still hopeful that the problem is not paranormal in nature and that his wife just didn't see what she thought she saw. But then that 3 a.m. nightly knocking kept continuing. Night after night, Joe's jumping out of bed, flinging his door open, only to find no one there. Then about a month into his stay, Joe allegedly has an even more intense paranormal experience. He'll later say that he was taking Fred for a nightly walk around the grounds, had made it to the outskirts of the woods where Fred suddenly became extremely agitated. He started growling, snarling, and then very unlike him, he took off, ignoring Joe's commands for him to stop, and ran into the woods. Joe chased after him, wondering just what had gotten into his well-trained, normally would never do that companion. Soon he saw something out of the corner of his eye. A man was running through the woods with a look of fear on his face. He seemed to be definitely running away from something or again from somebody. Joe was about to call out to the man to see if he needed help. When his mouth dropped, he saw, just as Vicky had seen before, that the man had no legs. The man sped past a tree, then vanished as quickly as he had uh, shown up, disappearing into nothing. Joe then retrieved Fred, ran back to the house to tell Robert and Vicky about what had happened. Joe and Fred would take a different route for the nightly walks from that point forward. In the weeks that followed, the nightly knocking on Joe's door became louder, more demanding. Joe continued to try and determine if, uh, determine if a living person could somehow be behind it all. He quickly answered the door over and over again, called for the trespasser to identify themselves night after night, even inspected the area around his apartment over and over, but would never find anyone. And then one night, the knocking was so frantic, it felt like the room was shaking. Fred positioned himself under the bed, wouldn't come out. Joe now shouted, who's there? I have a gun. The knocking grows louder still, louder and louder, until eventually the door flies open. And there's a young man on the other side who now steps through the doorframe and then stands still with a look of absolute terror on his face. Joe and this man now supposedly stare at each other, equal expressions of horror on their faces. And then with the crash, the door violently slams shut again. And when Joe opens it a moment later, this young man has vanished. The totality of these uh, events led property owners Robert and Vicki Graves to research the case of Herb Baumeister. They read articles, watch news reports, even talk to the local police. They start to wonder if the spirits of some of Herb's victims are now stuck haunting their property. And they become convinced 
Uh, this is the case when one night Joe, Vicky, and Robert are watching some old news footage and Joe just about jumps out of his seat yelling, oh my God, that's him. That's the man who came through my door. The man who Joe saw was clearly one of the young men who had been reported missing. And again, if this fucking happened, can you imagine that happening to you? Unfortunately, figuring out uh, who one of the spirits was did not put an end to them haunting the property. Things allegedly get worse after Joe identifies his nightly visitor. This next encounter, again, if true, holy fucking terrifying. One night shortly after figuring out who was knocking on his door, Joe said he was enjoying a swim in that indoor pool. He said he was paddling around, enjoying the feel of warm water on his skin, uh, when suddenly all the lights flicker out. Almost simultaneously, Joe said he felt an invisible force grab him around his neck, squeeze, while also trying to pull him under the water. He fought against it with everything he could, eventually freed himself. Joe, now absolutely terrified, climbs out of the pool, runs back to the apartment without getting changed. He's convinced he had just met the ghost of Herb Baumeister and that Herb's apparition had tried to kill him. For financial reasons, Joe does not move out after this, but he does stay the fuck away uh, from the pool. And he does supposedly have more paranormal encounters. Another evening, Joe claims he's sitting at his desk when he hears an unusual scraping sound. Said he went to investigate the apartment, found all the knives from the wooden block had been removed and arranged in the sink and that knife marks had now also appeared gouged into the wall. And he was certain they had not been there before. Joe had seen a few ghost hunting shows before and now decides to uh, attempt his own EVP, electronic voice phenomenon session using an old tape recorder. He wants to prove to others what he's experiencing is real. He asked a few questions, including who was present in his apartment while he was asking. He does not hear anything speaking back to him, but he says that when he listened to the tape later that night, he heard a voice clearly respond, a male voice say, the married one. Right or wrong, Joe is adamant this was the voice of the ghost of Herb. Following this EVP session, uh, now whenever he's outside the property near the woods where the bones have been discovered, Joe said he started seeing dark human-like figures darting around. Said they had no facial features, just thick black masses, but he could feel them watching him. Joe finally decided that he was uh, in too much danger to stay, wondered if these figures were not just ghosts, but something else, possibly something demonic. Even though he hasn't, uh, you know, or wasn't, excuse me, in the best financial position to do so, he moves out. After Joe leaves, the paranormal activity decreases, but doesn't go away. Robert and Vicky are still uncomfortable enough with the unexplainable events that keep occurring that they accept offers of some ghost hunting teams to now come investigate the property. So Ghost Adventures with Zach Bagans, you know, uh, they're the first team to investigate the property. The investigation considered a mild success with the most notable events being a few successful EVP recordings, picking up a clear male voice saying things like Herb did it and help. But when the investigation is over, the property is still just as haunted as ever. And so now hoping that they'll learn something that will help them end the haunting, the graves invite ghost hunter uh, Richard Estep and his team to the farm. You never have too many fucking Richards in an episode of Times Like, by the way, just dick, dick, dick. Uh, this dick and his team visit the farm twice. It is a fucking uncanny how many Richard show up. I keep saying it, it just keeps happening. Uh, Richard believed that Joe was the one uh, with the connection to Herb's spirit and that he was some sort of catalyst for all the recent paranormal activity. This becomes evident to Richard after he invites Joe back to the farm after a slow first day of investigation. As soon as Joe returned, activity supposedly starts to pick up immediately. Richard's team said they suddenly experienced the feeling of being poked and prodded. Members claimed to have felt invisible hands grab them in various places. I'm guessing maybe the throat and maybe the balls, dick. Uh, they also said that they found, and this is terrifying, an underground tunnel in the woods with the words, uh, with the word bones carved into the wall. After leaving Fox Hollow for the first time, Richard and his team consulted a Catholic priest and invited some supposed psychic named Brian Sanders to come along for their next investigation. The priest supposedly claimed that the farm was not haunted by Herb at all, but by an inhuman demonic entity pretending to be Herb. Brian was of the opinion that seven entities haunted the farm. Herb, four of Herb's victims, 
a Native American spirit and what he called an elemental. Some kind of, some people would call it some kind of demonic entity. The second investigation apparently turned out more proof of the paranormal. Team claimed to have caught an apparition uh, on one of the monitors coming out of Joe's old closet. Scary. Also came to the conclusion that these spirits either were not willing or could not communicate in a way that would allow the team to help them move on. And the team finished their investigation by recommending to the graves that Joe stay away from their property. Fucking Joe. Uh, and that if they wanted to keep living there, they should not conduct further investigations and hope that the spirits will settle back down and leave them be. Robert and Vicky took the advice. They refused to allow more people to investigate on their farm for many years. They later reported that with Joe gone, the paranormal activity, though still present, was very mild and seemed benign. And as far as I can tell, the Grace family still lives there today. Well, actually they do because an article that just came out a couple days ago regarding bones being found references the graves. Um, uh, as far as I know, no spirit has returned to knock on any doors or attempt to drown anyone in the swimming pool. And a lot of this uh, information comes from a, uh, uh, a little documentary called The Haunting of Fox Hollow Farm that came out in 2011. So creepy shit of true, right? And Fox Hollow Farm, far from the only supposedly haunted place connected to a serial killer. John Wayne Gacy's old home supposedly haunted. Several places Ted Bundy lives supposedly haunted. Uh, Bell Gunnis' old murder farm. Hangy bangy, oofta, oofta. Also supposedly haunted. Uh, we've covered some of these stories already, not just on Time Suck, but also on Scared to Death. Quite a few true crime stories connected to numerous alleged paranormal encounters. So pretty spooky to think about the possibility that the evil deeds that some of these dirtbags have committed don't fade into memories when they die. That they might live on somehow in ways many of us do not like to believe are possible. Okay, speculation, uh, paranormal speculation over for today. You can check out Scared to Death for so much more than that if you're interested. Now let's look back at some details that we know for sure are true about Herbert Baumeister in today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, in late 1994, Herbert Baumeister's 13-year-old son found a human skull and other bones in the backyard. When the family confronted Herb about it, he insisted it was just a cadaver used by his late dad. And, you know, he just kind of left outside and maybe forgot about it. And his wife, Julie, did not question that. Number two, Herb and his wife, Julie, owned some popular businesses in Indianapolis, the Save-A-Lot thrift stores. The businesses started off as very successful, but things uh, pretty quickly went downhill. Employees reported that Herb was demanding, often disappeared for hours at a time, and returned smelling like alcohol. Julie said she was so overwhelmed with managing the business and her family that she claimed she didn't notice any of Herb's strange behavior, but get the fuck out of here. Herb acted strange their entire marriage. Number three, Herb Baumeister fucked his wife six times, and they had three kids. I'm never going to get past that. That that feels like that should be in the Guinness Book of World Records for something. Number four, after his death, Herb Baumeister was linked to nine of the I-70 Strangler murders. The I-70 murders were a series of murders, young men and boys committed between 1980 and 1990. Bodies dumped near Interstate 70 between Indiana and Ohio. Authorities believe that once Herb moved to Fox Hollow Farms, he started to dump the bodies on his estate. And number five, new info. Despite over 10,000 bone fragments already having been recovered over the years from Fox Hollow Farms, back on Sunday, December 4th, a new team of cadaver dogs searched the property yet again. Indiana Canine Search and, Re and Recovery brought around 10 dogs to the property, dogs trained in the odor of human remains and uh, the humans uh, and, and look for, you know, changes and, and sorry, the humans with them look for changes in the dog's behavior during the searches to locate body locations. During the dog search, there were around 20 locations that were flagged and as potentially having human remains. The deputy coroner logged GPS points on each of those locations. Moving forward, the coroner's office will be consulting with their, their forensic and law enforcement partners to decide how to process the area. 
Investigators are still trying to identify the remains of um, so many skeletons or partial skeletons found at Fox Hollow Farm. You know, over uh, a dozen. Anyone who believes they are a relative of a missing person connected to the case should contact the coroner's office at 317-770-4415. Jeff Jellison, chief deputy at the Hamilton County Coroner's Office and a coroner elect said, if we don't get comparison samples from relatives of those missing people, then our investigation will come to a halt very quickly. I need people that if you had someone missing in the middle eighties to middle nineties, I don't care where you're from, where they're from. I need you to come forward and provide us with a DNA sample. It's just a swab of the cheek. Takes just a few seconds. It's painless. We will come to you. We will get you the DNA test kit. So hail Jeff Jellison, still working hard to provide closure to victims' families so many years after they were killed. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Herb Baumeister, serial killing leads to a haunting, has been sucked. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic's production team for their help in making another time suck. Thank you again to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to the Suck Ranger and the Art Warlock, both of them tag team to produce uh, and direct today's show. Uh, and uh, thanks to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app, the Art Warlock, Logan Keith again for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com for helping run our socials along with the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., and a team managed by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. Uh, thanks to producer Olivia Lee for the initial research this week. Thanks to everyone helping moderate the Cult of the Curious three out of five stars, the so far listed as unofficial private Facebook page that we will rename soon and, and we'll reach out to moderators to help us. Uh, it's just been so much other shit going on recently, like me being sick for a month and the craziest, craziness of the holiday season when you have kids. But we'll get to it. Uh, thanks to Becky and the Discord crew keeping uh, that uh, Discord running smooth and everyone over at the Time Suck subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Next week, because it is the holidays, we're going to cover something uplifting. And take a little break from the darkness. We're going to be covering uh, Joseph Mengele, the Nazi angel of death, whose experiments on living human beings at Auschwitz sound like something out of a horror movie. And uh, the, the, the week after next, we'll be covering something uplifting. This next week is dark as fuck. Because that is what the space lizards have decreed. This is a voted in topic. Uh, when World War II began, Joseph Mengele had already been part of the Nazi party for years. One of the first aims of the Nazis was to take over their, uh, the medical establishment right? Medical schools, research labs, universities. They instituted a program that convinced doctors that the goal of medicine was not to heal the sick and cure diseases. It was to prove scientifically that the Aryan race was the best. To prove scientifically that all others were inferior races based on bullshit evidence, like the measurements of their bones and traits that may or may not have been actually inherited. Uh, but the Nazis said they did, or said they were. This was the Nazi school of medicine, and Mengele would become its star student. In 1943, Mengele was appointed the chief doctor at Auschwitz at the death camps in Poland. At Auschwitz, uh, Mengele, wearing distinctive white gloves, would supervise the selection of Auschwitz incoming prisoners for either torturous labor or immediate extermination, shouting either right or left to direct them to their fate. One word from him could save them, but sometimes that saving came at a terrible price. If you were someone with some sort of congenital medical issues, uh, maybe someone with dwarfism or gigantism or happened to have a twin, Mengele would spare you only to kill you in terrible ways with his research. In pursuing his evil curiosity and or to help the Nazi war effort, Mengele injected or ordered others to inject thousands of inmates with everything from petrol to chloroform to study the chemicals effects. Among other atrocities, he plucked out the eyeballs of corpses to study eye pigmentation, conducted numerous gruesome studies of twins and more. We've heard his name several times, but we've never truly explored his crimes in detail. And there's so much detail to give. Things he said himself in his journals and autobiographies, papers he wrote for the Nazi medical establishment, copious uh, lab notes he kept. 
the eyewitness testimony of many forced uh, to endure the brutality uh, in the name of so-called science, his brutality. Shit's going to get intense next week. Happy dark fucking holidays. Right now, let's keep it light and head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. First up, we have Marvelous Meat Sack, Alex Keffer Swaney, or Swanee, shining a light on a fallen law enforcement officer and also trying to bring a smile to a wonderful man's face. Alex writes, hi, Dan and others. I can't say that I am a routine listener, but I do hear your voice daily. My boyfriend, Steven, is a big fan of your comedy and podcast, and it also helps that him and Lindsay have the same birthday. We had the pleasure of seeing your show the last time you were in Kansas City. We even got to meet you after the show. Steven brought a police challenge coin for you to add to your collection. He was very excited for that show and happy to meet you. We forgot to ask for a photo, but he was happy to talk to you even for just a few moments. Earlier this summer, there was a North Kansas City police officer that was killed in the line of duty, Daniel Vasquez. He was our roommate. Steven and him were great friends. He has been taking it very hard as anyone would when one of your best friends is killed doing the same job that you do. Steven has been with KCPD for over four years, was in the Army National Guard for eight years prior. Some days, the only time I hear Steven laughing or see him cracking a smile is when he listens to your shows. I'm just hoping you can send him some encouragement to keep him going. He listens to you while in the car or while in the kitchen, while he's cooking. Your voice is usually the loudest in the house. We appreciate all the work and production that goes into your shows. Keep sucking. Thanks for your time, Alex Keffer Sweeney. Well, Alex, thank you for bringing this to my attention. And first off, rest in peace, Officer Daniel Vasquez. Man, damn, making the ultimate sacrifice. Hope wherever he is now is a place where that shit never happens, where he can exist in peace. And Stephen, I haven't been through uh, what you're going through, and I won't pretend to have gone through it. I just hope going forward, you can focus on what you still have more than what you've lost. I imagine that your friend would want you to do that, to live for him as well as for yourself. Uh, thank you for your service, for continuing to do what you do. It's so important, and many of us do realize how truly important your job is. Uh, hope our paths cross again soon. Thank you for the challenge coin. We do have it. And I hope you and Alex, you know what? I hope you two fuck each other's brains out. I hope you fuck so many more times than six. Uh, it's a good way to bring a smile uh, to your face bigger than anything my dumbass can do. Hail Nimrod, dude. Uh, now informative sack, Connor Martin. Coming in with a hot take. Subject line of update, Ted Bundy killed John Benet Ramsey. Interesting. And then Connor writes, uh, whoops, sorry, that headline should have had a comma in it after killed. Update, Ted Bundy killed John Benet Ramsey. But I hope it grabbed your attention. Yeah, it did. It was a good one. Anyway, whoever reads this at the Suck Dungeon, I hope this news gets back to the Suckmaster. I'm a criminal justice major in Colorado who comes before the cold bearing firsthand accounts from a local detective in our police department who spoke in my police procedure class recently. He actually helped tie Ted Bundy to my city, Grand Junction, by solving a cold case disappearance, not initially thought to be a murder. He figured out that a yellow bike, which had been recovered from the river and was sitting in evidence for decades, belonged to a woman who was incredibly likely to have been a victim of that charismatic psycho. The bike linked it all together because while the family supplied a photo of her to help with her search, nobody ever looked at the bike in the picture. But during her search, the bike had not yet been found. They simply chalked her up as a runaway. Years later, when he was working on cases, he saw that picture and knew there was a bike in evidence that looked just like it and started connecting the dots. She was last seen riding her bike with a man matching Bundy's description. She fit the profile of the women he went after. And all of this happened in my hometown, which has I-70 that we've just been talking about, uh, running right through it conveniently located between Utah and Denver, which was right in his hunting grounds. Anyway, uh, a lot more went into the investigation, but all that matters is I am now three degrees from Ted Bundy. The Ramsey case update was also because of the same guest speaker. 
Being in Colorado, he actually worked alongside the main investigators on the Ramsey case. I know in the episode you gave a few probable conclusions, but I, I now want to share the inside scoop of which I believe the most. And this is not one I mentioned at all. Didn't know about it. He told us that almost every person on that case, although not publicly, wholeheartedly believed that John Benavis Ramsey's mother actually killed her, but not intentionally. They suspected that the father had been molesting his daughter for some time, but one time the mom confronted him about it. And by confronting him, I mean, they all think that she walked in on it happening, tried to hit him with the golf club, which he managed to dodge, letting it strike John Bonet directly in the head. And as we all know, given all the fuckery that went on with the crime scene, the suspicion or any other was just too hard to prove, which is why that version is just one of many. But at least it was speculation by the investigators. Anyway, if it somehow makes it on air, that's fucking wild. Uh, it would make my girlfriend's Christmas to get a shout out. We saw you in Denver last November at Comedy Works where I volunteered her for your misophonia bit. Uh, you deduced that her condition was likely self-induced from her suckling too loudly on her own mother's tit as a baby. Her name is uh, Genevieve, which your mush mouth thought was Genevieve. That's fair. And she now thinks that you're best friends or something and relives that moment as often as she can bring it up uh, even a whole year later. I'm done now. And if I was sorry for the length of this email, I would not have written it. If you have a problem with it, I kindly invite you to just keep on sucking. <laughs> well, thank you, Connor. Uh, very interesting info about Bundy and JonBenet Ramsey. How how terrible if that is how she died. Holy shit. How terrible if that is how she lived. That her father was molesting her. She was six years old when she died. Ugh. Again, some people's lives. So short and so terrible. Uh, you keep on sucking as well. And thank you for that extra in info. And yeah, and say hi to my best friend, Genevieve. We are best friends, Connor. And fucking live with it. Uh, all right, moving now to uh, something silly. Super sucker, Anthony Thornton writes. Hey, uh, King Space Lizard, holder of Bojangles Leash, listening to the suck on IHOPKC, and yeah, corporate worship does sound kind of weird. A lot of words can sound strange outside of church, you know? When I was a teen, we were in church singing a hymn. The line went, angels prostate, prostrate fall. My friend Tim leaned over and whispered, isn't the prostrate a body organ like up your butt? I nearly had to leave the service. <laughs> what made it worse was that it was on local television. Three cameras made it pretty likely I was going to be immortalized, either laughing uncontrollably in the pew or in the aisle. I clamped that down until I was able to explain the difference between the organ, prostate gland, and the position, prostrate, lying face down. I still get the giggles to this day when that song plays. Three out of five stars <laughs> wouldn't change a thing. Well, thank you for sharing that, Anthony. And you know what? I mean, I bet angels do have some pretty sweet prostates, right? Like, like I bet you when angels are doing butt stuff, I bet they come so hard. <laughs> uh, okay, now for some dumb fucking hillbillies. Let's hear for some backwoods fucking sacks. Uh, Jamika Keaton. I can't believe she even understands what an email is, let alone knows how to send one. But she did. JK. Uh, Sweetest Sack Jamaica writes, all hail the suck lord, or as one of the people I have shared this podcast with said, all hell the suck lord. <laughs> I'm writing you from a small rural county in Western Kentucky. Yes, some of us can read, write, and spell. Though if you talk to me, I still sound like cornbread, but definitely jiffy. That's funny. I'm, uh, I'm writing in just to let you know the Kentucky accent is one that is very different from the quote South, and I would be happy to introduce my 90s baby black farm girl accent to your comedy brain bank. <laughs> it would be my honor to pay tribute to Lucifina herself. Oh, my. And give something back to you and the entire Bad Magic group. Hello. Uh, as you have all given so much to others charity-wise and me personally through knowledge. Uh, my biracial Eastern Kentucky mountain man husband exposed me to your podcast a long while ago. Uh, he is a veteran 
a history buff, a man that makes dynamite cord, legally I swear, and is no doubt the smartest meat sack on our side of the state. Your podcast has given so much to our relationship. We listened to you in long car rides, but I had to stop uh, doing that with Scared to Death. Those stories in dark country roads, big old nope. Uh, we listen while we're cleaning and well, pretty much anytime we don't feel like talking. Even our son listens to you. We really hope to catch your show in Louisville, but eventually settled on, we probably should not bring our one-year-old. Nah, probably not. Even though I'm pretty sure he's better behaved than most adults where we live. Having your podcast has really been a breath of fresh air in an area that smells like sewage, chicken farms, oil, and secrets. Ha! <laughs> you, you are a very funny writer. Now the darker part of my letter. As people that think so much differently than those around us in Kentucky, we appreciate hearing your takes on the rest of the world. We admire the way you provide research based on information and truly appreciate the way you help us feel seen in a place where we're often ignored, if we're lucky in some cases. Oh, man. Uh, uh, since you are covering more true crime again, I wonder if you might if I might suggest the Emmett Till murder. In school, we were never taught anything about that case on purpose. But now that I'm adult, I strive to learn everything I can. Your podcast has actually helped with that. If you read this on the show, please give a shout out to my husband, Anthony Keaton. Fucking Tony. Uh, it would mean a lot to him. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Jamaica Keaton. Banjo music plays me out. <laughs> ah, Jamaica. Thanks for writing in. You sound fucking awesome. And so does your husband, Anthony. Yeah, the murder of, well, I mean, the lynching of Emmett Till is on the topic board. And I hope your message gets more space lizards voting it up. And yeah, that would be a, a great and important subject. Very interesting case. Very sad case, as a lot of these are. But, uh, and I know uh, what it's like. To live in a place, uh, be from a place, uh, you know, the, the rest of the world seems to uh, think is only populated by nothing but inbred morons. No, there's idiots everywhere, but so are geniuses and everything in between. This small town uh, Idaho kid, you know, sees you to some some degree in rural Kentucky. So hail Lucifina, and I hope you keep enjoying the show. And now for one last update, something inspiring. Ambitious sack, Eric motherfucking Harmon, done, did it. And he writes, let's start with the typical ball gargling. Uh, praise because it's due. I've been a fan of your stand-up for years, but you jumped to the top of my favorite comics list with the dead squirrel puppet bit. Holy shit, beautifully sick. Uh, that was my first taste of your ear heroin. Before I knew it, I was time-sucking in dark alleys, cheap hotels and truck stops. Oh, fuck yeah. Uh, now I find myself a fully addicted spaces or waiting for my weekly fix. Now for the less typical praise, simply stated, I owe you. Listening to you for years on Time Suck, building something from nothing inspired my wife and I. Having a vision for something that you'd enjoy and thinking it might work as a business, putting it all on the line and taking the shot. About a year ago, my wife Jackie and I opened an axe throwing bar in Mendocino County in Northern California. We don't come from money. So to pull it off, we had to recruit friends and family and physically build a business ourselves. Fast forward a year, excuse me. And we have built a stage and are hosting live music most weekends. We got a full liquor license and are a restaurant that serves artesian grilled cheese sandwiches. What kind of fuckwits mortgage their house to start a business when a pandemic is causing trouble and people are whispering about a recession? My wife, Jackie, and I. If you happen to read this on the show, please give a shout out to our staff of rock stars, the Thirsty Axe team, and especially to Joanna Villanueva. She's also a sucker in space lizard, and her hearing this on air would be fucking great. Uh, Jackie and I will be at your show in Sacramento in February. If you're interested in checking out our place, we're at the Thirsty Axe on Facebook and Instagram and thirstyaxe.com. Thanks again for the ear heroin and for the inspiration. Eric Harmon in Ukiah, California. Oh, fuck you, Eric. You did it. You and Jackie fucking did it. You walked out on that tightrope and you didn't fall. I'm truly so happy for you. What a wonderful feeling it is. Uh, sounds like you've given cool jobs to a lot of awesome people. I love it. Not sure I'll be able to swing by, but I appreciate the hell out of this invite. And I hope some Ukiah area suckers out in Mendocino County hear this message and go throw some fucking axes and eat some of that sweet cheese.
And that combination, by the way, sounds like a pretty fun way to shit your pants. Uh, Hail Nimrod, everyone. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Please, fuck your wife this week. Or your husband. Or your boyfriend. Or your boy toy. Or your girlfriend. Or your fuck buddy. Or yourself. And please, if you're in a relationship with someone, be excited to fuck that person. And if you're not, I hope you can find someone you are excited to fuck. But don't trap anyone in a sexless relationship. Maybe if you're regularly fucking, guilt-free, publicly, the kind of person who gets your motor going, you won't want to kill anyone. Hail Lucifina. Less killing, more fucking, more coming, and more sucking too. And keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. I wish I, I wish I was, I was better impressions. I, I did practice before the show. I watched some uh, some Nicolas Cage uh, interviews. I'm just trying to talk nasally with him and really maybe kind of extend words longer than I normally would. Very funny for me to imagine him as Killer Christ. And then Keanu Reeves... I don't know. I know he doesn't talk like this really as, as much as people make it out. But like, I try to go back to like um, point break kind of days. Just, whoa, dude, what are you doing, man? Where you just try and like, you're a little bit surprised all the time when you're talking. Oh, whoa. <laughs> and like a little bit of um, Bill and Ted's. <laughs> Excellent adventures. And oh, dude, Jesus, killer Christ. Whoa, what are you doing? And Samuel Jackson... I can hear his voice so clearly in my head, but I can't mimic it. But I just, I just keep repeating um, a few phrases from Pulp Fiction, right? Where he's like, English motherfucker, do you speak it? Say what again? <laughs> he, is, he has one of my favorite voices of all time. And if I do ever hear the voice of God, oh, please let it be Samuel L. Jackson's voice. That'll get my attention. Right? Like, I don't know if the other two voices would. Like, if I thought I was hearing God and it was like Keanu Reeves, then you gotta get your life, like, ho, ho, you gotta get your life together. I'd be like, I don't know. You know, or if like Nick Cage, damn, you gotta get your life together. Eh, I don't know. But if Samuel Jackson was, motherfucker, get your life together. I'd be like, ah, okay, <laughs> whatever you want. Well, I promise, Samuel Jackson. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. That's all I got. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.